And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This is the Hagman and Hagman Report coming to you live. That's right, live and in living color. Don't adjust your sets. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. Broadcast live every weeknight, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. It's the place to be. Also on YouTube Live and Blog Talk Radio. Got a great uh, program lined up for you tonight. Oh, man. We've got um, Stan Deo. We'll yeah, be Stan on Deo. hour three, Sorry. as always, each and every Tuesday. This That's first right. segment, we're going to be going through the latest news and important information That's right. pertaining to current events happening here domestically and around the world. And we got a special guest for you at yeah. 7.30 to 9. That's right. Both it, tonight and tomorrow. Yeah, this is going to be a two-parter. This is part one of a two-part uh, series. It's an investigative series, folks. Um, I've been an investigator for 30 years, so let me just say this. Um, there are certain events in history, just really quickly, and then uh, I'll, I'll save the rest for our guests from uh, segments through two through four inclusive. But there are certain moments in history that uh, provide opportunities for all of us to see the emperor without clothes. And uh, one that we're going to be talking about uh, coming out of the gate here, and that's Hillary Rodham Clinton's uh, email server. You might get tired of hearing about that, but don't be, because there's some new information that also is suggestive of criminal intent. But let me back up and go back to the um, uh, our guest tonight. It's going to be a, a Rex. His name is Rex. Uh, I'm, we're not going to give out his last name. And the reason for that is we know who he is. I've got his complete uh, resume here on file at the studio. I know exactly who he is. I know his co- who his colleagues are. But uh, he's been he's been threatened. He's been threatened. Um, threatened by the powers that 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 are, and um, he's been threatened over his investigation he conducted into the apparent death of Loretta Fuddy, the downing of the aircraft on December 11th, 2013. Of course, Loretta Fuddy is the gatekeeper of the Obama birth certificate. Now, you might say, well, what difference does it make now? Who cares now? It's a little late, right? No. Because the same actors, the same perps, the same uh, criminal uh, conspirators are in power right now, as are the same people in the media. We're going to identify everybody. Two nights We're going to lay it all out for you. 117-page report, investigative report, dropped on our desk. Well, not dropped on our desk, but given to us. Joe, you saw it, right? 117 pages. Mm -hmm. About tonight? You know what? Nodding doesn't do well on radio. That's true. <laughs> yes. No, but you saw uh, it. You yes. saw it. Yeah. And it's my investigative opinion that this particular document exposes the criminal element of Obama, his people. Now, you, you, again, you might say, well, you know, who cares? We know he's a criminal. No. What's that? 
a PDF file. Yeah, it's, yeah, okay. it's, yeah. it's the same one. Yeah. But, um, no, it's, uh, and by the way, we have it printed. We, we've got copies of it uh, in multiple locations as he does. Um, there, there's audio and video assets files that accompany this report, which are being stored off premise. It speaks to who Obama is. It speaks to his uh, cadre of conspirators. And it also identifies people in the press who uh, are, who are behind this 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 regime of, of uh, tyranny. And you know uh, that word tyranny. Now, well, before I get started, I just want to mention the portions of tonight's broadcast brought to you by Elite Island Resorts. Hmm. Do you, do you ever want to get away? Boy, man, if you don't now, I mean, if you don't want to get away right now, uh, yeah. How about getting away for the holidays, maybe? Or, or leaving the chaos behind in general? There you go. We find an amazing getaway at, at just an incredible price. If you go to our website, that's HagmanReport.com, go down and, and take a look. Uh, find the pineapple, Pineapple Beach Club. This is, uh, it's in Antigua, which is in the Caribbean. Or Caribbean. Depends on, you know, where you're from, right? But it's, uh, this is a great, great, uh, resort. The, uh, Antigua, they've got 365 beaches, one beach for every day of the year, but this is a fabulous, fabulous offer. Elite Island Resorts, the Pineapple Beach Club. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link for information. That's the Pineapple Beach Club in Antigua. And all of the information is contained at the website. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com. That's pineapplebeachclub.com, pineapplebeachclub.com. More on that later. But as I was saying, and, and Joe, well, we have to get through this really quickly, but I just, I was, I was just saying, look, the, um, the, the tyranny that America is under. It is amazing to me, and this I want to speak directly to the individuals who write on the Internet, who claim to be journalists. Despite the uh, amount of people in the media, very few I would consider journalists today. Good point. You're exactly right. In fact... What's worse than a journalist who doesn't do their job? A lawyer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The politician. The politician, <clears throat> lawyer. No, it's, uh, okay. Well, I'll tell you what's worse than the, the, to me. It, the, the journalist who doesn't do his or her job is a journalist who says, well, you know, I'm a conservative and I'm anti, or, you know, I, I, I'm, I, in fact, I'm working to expose Clinton and is actually, actually working on her behalf. You see that a lot with the <clears throat> health stories that have come out about the Hillary Clinton health, where people and from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and even on cable news networks will, you know, claim to be questioning it, but will then take, you know, a one-page letter from 2014 issued by her doctor, you know, years ago, stating it and claiming it as fact of a release right. of her full medical records, as one example. Exactly. So what we have is we have certain people who who are, are, are call themselves journalists. They write columns. They write books 
to expose the Clinton cabal when in fact they're not doing that. They're just seeding the other side. They're, they're helping the other side because they're giving half the picture. It's kind of like Congress in a way. You've got, uh, you've got Trey Gowdy and, and others, all of these, these House and Senate hearings. And you know what all that is? It's nothing but show. Because have we seen indictments from it? No. Have we seen any type of um, anything from it? No, we haven't. Any any meat uh, from the, the investigation? In my view, as an investigator and in an investigation, you conduct an investigation. It's not a career. It is a it is a deliberate purpose. You do something. You investigate something for a con- to, to arrive at a conclusion. You either conclude that there's nothing there or there is something there, right? And to do that, you have to have an open mind and go into it. As, without any bias or opinion, there you as go. much as possible, and, and you follow the leads wherever that they may take you. And, and once more, you might be sitting back and saying, well, "What the heck?" You know, I mean, this isn't first grade. We know this, but sometimes I think no. we have to be reminded of this because what's happening now is the uh, alleged journalists are they have their their end result or what they're wanting to report the way they want to report it. That's right. And then they work to find the facts to fit their narrative of the way things go or the party line narrative. <laughs> exactly. Rather than looking at it, you know, without any uh, opinion one way or the other and saying we're just going to get to the bottom of this based on the facts, they already have their fact and their storyline. They just are trying to fill it with as much uh, as they can. Um but you know that what, isn't Joe, damaging. That doesn't get to the actual bottom line, and instead fits their narrative rather than the fact. And, and, and you're right. And, and folks, I've never seen a more uh, horrendous environment out there with respect to the journalists. I've never seen it. It's worse than any other time I've ever seen. These people are disingenuous <laughs> and yeah. worse than that. I watched Meet the Press, uh, the whole Meet the Press show this Sunday for the first time, and I can't tell you how long. And it was just mind-boggling traumatized to, to watch. Um, no, it was just very humorous. Uh, Chuck Todd is the host of Meet the Press, <laughs> and they had uh, a they had Tim Kaine on Hillary's vice presidential pick, which in a minute we'll get to. Uh, somebody found in Hillary Clinton's book what she really thought of the Tim Kaine, the vice presidential pick. Uh, in her book, she writes about Obama's VP choice was very critical, giving odds. To whom he may pick, Biden, a one in two chance, Bay, one in four chance, Kane and Sebulus, 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 both yeah. who I think are terrible choices, mm. is what she said in her own book, writing about the 08 election and Obama's president, uh, vice presidential pick, calling her own vice presidential pick, Tim Kane, a terrible choice. Yeah, well, he must have redeemed himself in the eight years that uh, she had to think about it, right? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, getting back to the journalists, and the reason this is important is because you're going to find a lot of people, or not a lot, but a select number of, of uh, uh, journalists or reporters, investigative journalists, authors, just just really uh, polluting, contaminating the, the the truth pool. Yeah, and my point about the Meet the Press, with yes. Chuck Todd, and he had Tim Kaine on, and then he had a Trump campaign manager, a woman I was unfamiliar with. But, um, and she did very well, unemotional, even though this Chuck Todd was attacking her and the campaign about the birther issue. And when she went on to say that, you know, Hillary Clinton started the birther issue, he kept yelling, two wrongs don't make a right. And he would not get off it. And the campaign manager even pointed out, she said, you know, Chuck, I checked the Meet the Press uh, website 
And not only was that birther issue not in the top 20 things your audience wants you to talk about, it wasn't even in the top 40. And But he wouldn't stop harping on it. And, and you see this bias. And well, this, okay, what know, does that say, though? <clears throat> no, 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 that's interesting because so the, the public doesn't care. Is that what you're saying? The well, polls? the public, that was not on the top 40 of issues that the public asked Chuck Todd to ask these okay. two people about. All right, well. yeah, And, and there's a <sighs> screenshot of the book, folks. Yeah, that's... But, but but you see, what does the birther issue, or what does the natural born, uh, the birther uh, term is, is pejorative, and, and uh, I'm not really in favor of that, but what is the natural born citizen uh, clause for the Constitution? What does that really mean, and why is it in there? Because it was put in there because they, the, the founders of this country, did not want somebody from the from England uh, to, to, be, exactly. to, to be running this country. Exactly. And when you think about how uh, much of the Democrats and their covering media have gone out of the way to not only go against the Constitution, but to cover up these unconstitutional issues from the email scandal to Barack Obama's birth certificate, um, they have covered this up. The only time they, they use the Constitution is when they plead the Fifth Amendment in court, apparently. Other than that, they want to dismantle and destroy it or do not <laughs> care about it or refuse to follow it. That's right. And yeah. this is just one of those examples where, you know, even in the 08 election, they tried to hold McCain to a natural-born citizen uh, clause and say he wasn't eligible. And and with Obama, they ignored the, it. Even with Ted Cruz in the primary season, they right. ignored it. And, you know, that, by the way, McCain resulted in a Senate resolution to, to say that he was qualified. But what I find very interesting is the fact that uh, uh, the conservatives right now, with respect to Cruz, their position is, I don't care. I mean, Obama got away with this, so why do we have to play by the same rules? Since when do we become a lawless, do we have lawlessness like this? It is it is absolutely incredible, obviously, in my view. It's, uh, when I say incredible, perhaps by definition. But it's, um, what is that, the, was that the uh, Secretary of State, President, what, Eric? The, the, the red phone, oh, okay. Had the red phone, so red phone went off. Yeah. All right. But by the way, folks, uh, we do have limited advertising opportunities available. If you are a business owner, if you've got a product, if you've got a service you would like national exposure to, tune in or or tune in. Uh, go to HagmanReport.com or HagmanAndHagman.com. Click on the on the advertising opportunities box there. Read all about the advertising opportunities we have for you. It's really a great deal. Um, get your national exposure, much like uh, well, much like Elite Island Resorts or Pro Flowers or Omaha Steaks, and I can go on and on and on. Did various countries, Casper mattresses and such. We have that uh, available to you at a very at a very good cost, very competitive price. You can get your product or service out, out nationally and internationally on this radio program. I would urge everyone to check it out that uh, has a need to advance their or to get their um, exposure to their product or service. But, but you know, so are we okay? No. no. So hang on a minute. We're going to take we some housekeeping here. We're fine. Yeah, we're fine. But Stan's not going to be joining us tonight. Folks, oh. keep Stan in your prayers. He is um, under the weather. Okay. I uh, won't get into any more details. He can explain later, but uh, not nothing serious. He's just not going to be on tonight. All right. So. so that was the red phone? That was the red phone. Just a select few people have that number. St- Stan has it. And, and speaking of that, I was talking to Steve Quell today, and uh, 
just an amazing guy. Uh, I think he's he's going to be on next week. We're putting up program together. Um, we're actually Stephen, Steve and, and next myself. Wednesday the twenty eighth. Right, and uh, more information about that. We'll let you know more about that. But Steve's a uh, a heck of a guy, and and uh, just uh, just some of the things that we talked about off air. If man, just stuff. All right. Anyway. Um, and people are saying, oh, would you finish a sentence? Yeah. Look. It's one of those days. So, about the journalists and about people, here's the, here's the issue. You've got, uh, you've got, a, the natural born citizen aspect, the, the eligibility of Barack Obama, important for the following reason. Because it's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of law, lawfulness, not lawlessness, but it's a matter of allegiance as well. And that's what people are not getting. They're not understanding, and, and they're they're conflating natural born citizen with uh, born in the United States. I mean, you can you, somebody could be born on the steps of the Capitol building, all right, with with a Kennedy family serving scotch in celebration, and you would. It's very possible that that baby being born would not meet the requirements of a natural born citizen. Okay, just so you understand that this is a complex issue. And others will say, well, that was, that issue was solved, uh, resolved uh, through uh, various cases. No, not necessarily. It's kind of like this election issue if somebody, a candidate drops out uh, be, before the election day. What happens if the, if the party's nominee drops out before election day, which is very possible given Hillary's illnesses? And I'm going to just start referring to, and I think maybe we should do that, Joe. We should just start referring to her illness because I don't think anyone with of reasonable intellect can doubt that she's ill. No, and the latest just came out here um, a few minutes ago. Uh, with Trump regaining North Carolina lead, Hillary unexpectedly postpones local fundraiser without reason. Mm. Hmm. And her campaign staff has cited that her pneumonia is back, and mm. uh, that's... Well, wait a that's confirmed. She's and actually she stopping nothing. a fundraiser? Yes. Oh, and, that must be real tough. Last week, she sent her husband, Bill Clinton, to... In, in, his, in her place. In her place, to these uh, $50,000 plate. We talked about that. The Hollywood uh, fundraisers yep. that, you know, have these big-name celebrities and, and leftist backers. <clears throat> but even on the, the front headline of Dredge right now, if you look, that has a link to the Zero Hedge article, but the title on the Dredge report says, Hillary cancels another one. Trump says, sleep well. And with only what forty nine to fifty some days to go before the election, she's not scheduled to speak until uh, it's been like seven days, a period of seven days, and this is after a period of you know five or six days. And you look at her attendance, you look at the rallies that are there, uh, the attendance that are at the rallies, and they're just dismal. I saw a great comparison yesterday, where the last uh, Hillary rally at Temple had, you know, a couple hundred people while they showed a picture of the venue Trump filled, and it was over 31,000 at a uh, arena or stadium. Right. Yep. And Eric and I were talking before the show about, uh, we were list- we both listen to Herman Cain when we can in the morning, and, and all the callers that call <laughs> in, and, and they're they're pointing this stuff out. And um, even <laughs> Hillary's own comments about, uh, and I like this, Trump brought this up, and I heard this on a sound clip, about how Hillary called half of the Trump supporters deplorable, you know, racist, xenophobes, and used the word the baskets of deplorables. And Trump made the point that Hillary Clinton talks worse about American Trump supporters than she does about 
radical ISIS. Islam yeah. or an ISIS. And uh, it was yeah. a very good point. But it will be interesting to see. I wouldn't be surprised if Hillary canceled the debate performances. I, it, Ted Brower and I were speaking about this uh, today, and I don't believe that she can withstand the uh, the debate itself, at least not Hillary, the real Hillary. And we were also talking to, you know, the, the change in her appearance is the obvious change. And, and this goes right into, like, a conspiracy kind of uh, mindset. Oh, is there a body double? Well, you know, look, we're all adults here, are we not? We know that people of prominence, good or bad, um, have body doubles. Hitler had body yes. doubles. Stalin had body doubles. Saddam. Uh, Eric, Eric had body doubles. Saddam had at least four body doubles. Yeah. It's not uncommon at all, and it has not. I mean, this has been something that's been... That's right. Going on since politics has been around. So, I, I mean, is it possible that that, that there's a body? Sure, that it's possible. Again, we're all adults here. Let's let's address these issues with with uh, both honesty and sobriety. You know, um, without going crazy over it. Yeah, when you get into the, the body double stuff, as important as it is to point out, with what Hillary's already done to herself, from Benghazi to. Um, just all the different scandals, the email scandal, the uh, her tenure at the State Department, pay-to-play, the Clinton Foundation, the foreign government money coming in for That's favors, right. which is pay-to-play. Um, there is enough to just crumble her on her own words, on her own actions, past actions, and even what she claims she wants in the future for America and what she's going to do as, if she becomes president. Yep. Like, when she becomes president, the first 100 days, she has a plan to reform the immigration situation, even worse than it is you know, today. Yeah, just open up the, uh, the, the chicken wire fence down at the southern border. George Soros, her, you know, um, one of the key backers of the Clinton uh, cabal crime family and political branch, is now putting up $500 million to Half continue the immigration push into the Western civilization from... War-torn Muslim nation. He should be. In, I mean, he he should be arrested, in my view, for treason. Uh, I really think, or, or not treason. He should have been arrested um, when he was younger for uh, turning on his own uh, well, Jewish yeah. people, and and uh, that's you know that's how he got to start was turning over Jewish people to the Nazis, and he was Jewish. Uh, how much you want to bet that uh, Soros will be lauded as a, a, a big big time philanthropist? You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, that's how these people think they can cover their sins is through their, you know, if they have a million dollars in a year they give away in charity, they think that they can, you know, do well, X, this Y, and Z on yeah, the other side. But this will be depicted that half a billion that's going to tear down the various countries, the culture, borders, and language of cultures uh, of different countries, that is, uh, is going to be looked at as looked upon as some, something uh, philanthropic or uh, altruistic. And when it's just the opposite, it's to tear it down. I mean... Anyway, we're coming up against the break, and before we get to our guest, our special guest in the next segment, and I know we're going to hit news now in the last hour since Stan's not going to be on, that'll oh, give yeah. us a chance to catch up on some of this news that has been going under the radar with the different um, terrorist issues and uh, other things that have been going on. This really caught my attention today from the Times of Israel. Obama says this in the UN, to the UN today, Israel cannot permanently occupy settle Palestinian land. Oh. Barack Obama oh. said on Tuesday that while the Palestinians should reject terror and 
incitement, Israel must recognize that it cannot permanently occupy and settle Palestinian land. Surely Israelis and Palestinians will be better off if Palestinians reject the incitement and recognition of the legitimacy of Israel. But Israel must recognize it cannot permanently occupy and settle Palestinian land. We all have to do better, the president said at the 71st session of the UN General Assembly in New York. In his wide-ranging address, Obama sought to use his last appearance before this global body to define how his leadership had put the world on a better trajectory over the last eight years. At the heart of his approach, Obama said that the notion that conflicts are best solved when nations cooperate. The president cited his administration's outreach to former uh, adversaries Cuma, Cuba as examples of progress. He also cited the resolution last year of the Iranian nuclear issue through diplomacy as a key achievement over his past eight years. He says this is a less violent and more prosperous world with him as a, at the head of the U.S. presidency. Oh, man. But with one rife uncertainty unease and strife as nations struggle with devastating refugee crisis terrorism and breakdown of order in the middle east he says despite enormous progress governing has become more difficult and tensions are more quick to surface adding that the world now faces a choice to press forward with a better model for cooperation and integration or retreat into a world that is sharply divided this is the paradox that defines the world today obama said we must go forward and not backward Hmm. And it goes on from there, folks. If you want wow. to read what he said, you can find the video of his speech, or you can just go to the Times of Israel and see what they have uh, segmented from that speech and put in their article, because it's very important. And he also said something to a black uh, caucus where he said that it would be a stain on his legacy and that oh, he would yes, take it I as a that. personal insult if you don't if vote for Hillary Clinton Hillary. was not elected by and in the black community did not activate itself for the election of Hillary Clinton making the presidential election this time around trying to make it about him well it's not about his legacy no. it's not no. about his you know what's good for him he wants the globalist agenda to continue he wants Hillary Clinton in there to continue what he's already begun to unravel and surely she will do a lot more than he did in the uh, course of destructing this nation. She will finish off what he started. And you can take that to the bank. Folks, we're going to be right back after this short message with our very special guest. Right after this. some information for you. We're going to be talking with a gentleman by the name of Rex. No last names here. The reason for that, both he and his colleagues have been subjected to threats, harassment, with respect to the documented, discovered evidence they have about what we're going to be talking about now. Some of the threats, by the way, have already been fulfilled 
If that sends a chill down your spine, it, it, it certainly should. We're going to be talking about, uh, in particular, the the events that took place on December 11th, 2013. And if you're in a Hillary Clinton whining mood, you might throw up your hands and say, what difference does it make at this point? Well, it makes a lot of difference. Here, here's the deal, folks. On December 11th, 2013, the gatekeeper of Barack Hussein Obama's birth certificate, you know, when that long-form birth certificate, oh, that everyone says is a fraud, or not everyone, many people say it's a fraud, it's made out of whole cloth, it's it's a composite, it's layered, and on and on and on. Well, the gatekeeper, the person behind that, that document, went, was one of nine passengers in there, a small plane that went down off the coast of Hawaii. 12, 11, 13. And uh, with, with that, she was the only fatality out of the passengers. And she uh, reportedly died of a heart attack or some sort of heart event that took place. That's where the mainstream media stopped with this. Folks, you may remember, those of you who were with us a year, two years ago, I guess it was now, you may remember a woman, Butter Dizillion, coming on the, and that's an internet uh, uh, nom de plume, but uh, you remember her coming on and talking about the FOI requests and Freedom of Information Act requests, that is, and the FOIA requests that were needed, and she plowed through a lot of them got a lot. In fact, you helped us with the fees. When I say us, it was her and myself and you sent you send in money to, to offset the fees, which were oppressive at the time, but we she, more accurately went after him, got him the papers, and that set the groundwork the foundation for the investigation the results of which you're going to hear today from Rex. Now, Rex is an aviation and computer executive. He's been that for many years. He's been an FAA certified single multi-engine commercial pilot, instrument airplane flight instructor for over, well, nearly 30 years. So he's no young chicken. He's, he's credentialed. He's got the documentation. I believe the smoking gun documentation that will rock your paradigm in terms of what happened on that day in December 13, but not just what, the who behind it, the different agencies behind it, and the reason that it happened, as not only the reason that it, why it happened, but why it matters today. And in fact, maybe even more than ever, why it matters today. You see, I believe when I looked at this massive investigative work product, and it is massive, we 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 are fortunate enough, by the way, the Hagman Hagman report is fortunate enough to to be at the uh, the point on this at least now, I'm bringing you the uh, the some of the diagrams, pictures, and information contained in this investigative work product, which I would match against anything, any investigation out there. If if I could fly. A single engine or multi-engine plane as, as well as Rex can put together an investigation. Ah, that'd be, you know, I, I'd be, uh, I'd be, uh, able to do dogfights in the air. And I'm not blowing smoke. I mean, this is an incredible document. And again, we, we have it 
exclusively here. The reason this is important, of course, and, and I'll just say this through much research, Rex and his colleague have been able to determine many of the important details concerning the, the fighting plane crash that took place on December 11, 2013. They began with merely suspicions, and despite repeated government intransience, records of destruction, delays, false starts, assertions of classified evidence, obfuscations, and officially claimed disinterest in the story, they've uniquely learned through diligent research and responses from their inquiries to, to government agencies that the event was clearly a very intricately planned hoax and fraud, which was the product of a corrupt coordinated activities among several organizations and individuals, at least some of which are highly placed within the United States government, and they're facilitated by the press. But Rex is going to come on here. He's going to show the evidence, and if you're watching this via YouTube, it'll be on your screen. If you're listening to this via Global Star, just go ahead and start up a, uh, go, go to hagmanandhagman.com, click on tonight's program, today's program, and put it on your computer screen. If you're watching this, tell others. We need to get this word out. We need to get the word out about this because lives hang in the balance. Frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about Rex and his colleagues because th- there are issues regarding his safety. I give you his background. I'm not going to give his last name. We know who he is. He's been vetted thoroughly by us. We have his resume on file. We know where he lives. <laughs> last time somebody told me that didn't end well. But having said that, Rex, uh, thanks for joining the Hagman Hagman Report, buddy. Good evening, Doug. It's really a pleasure to be here. No, it's a pleasure can you to hear have me? you. Yeah, we can. Can you hear us? Very good. Yeah. <clears throat> it's all good. Um, and I'm just going to direct the people, if you're listening to this, whatever, you're, however you're listening to this, if you want to, and if you can, please go to our YouTube live stream where this will be archived as well. So if you're catching this on the archive, you can uh, listen to it via Global Star or BTR and go back and, and or uh, concurrently, uh, Look at the uh, documentation via YouTube Live. But Rex, uh, so, so you've been a, an aviation and computer company executive for a number of years. You're a FAA certified single multi-engine commercial commercial pilot, instrument flight instructor for over over one well, nearly thirty years. And you uh, you were handed this case to investigate because of your knowledge and background. Yes, That's, I was kind of brought on brought on to the scene a little after things began, particularly by uh, the my colleague with whom you had spoken before on the radio. <clears throat> okay. And uh, I was brought on because I had some aviation experience that uh, Butter Desilian did not have at that time. So um, really maybe a month or two after uh, things were happening, say, in early February or so of uh, 2014. And um, it was really because Butter Dezillion had some questions, and uh, I seemed to be able to answer the initial ones, and then we just got deeper and deeper into so many more aviation things than anyone really expected. So hopefully uh, I can lay out those kinds of things. Yeah. Butter Dezillion has been uh, particularly the person to honcho all of these FOIA requests and get behind uh, what these agencies are really trying to do uh, 
in delaying those uh, responses and so forth. She's been just tremendous and amazing at that. And she's gotten a name for herself across the Internet as being one of the finest researchers that you could ever find out there. And there's one place, uh, um, the foggy place you might have heard of. They have an entire multi-thousand post thread uh, devoted to, in some sense, honoring her, not positively, unfortunately, in that case, but recognizing the talent she has. Uh, She is a... She is a master at all of this, and uh, hopefully that'll be uh, be able to be read throughout time as people look at this case and see how it was cracked. Rex, let, let me start up by asking you this: Why is this particular is the death or the ostensible death of Loretta Fadi the the soft plane crash in 2013 at the end of 2013? Why should anyone? care you know I, I always I always see especially among conservatives I always see this well you know that's yesterday or that's just so yesterday um, oh that's old yeah. news or you know there's this resistance um, everything's a diversion except the issues and then the issues become a diversion it, it's just a constant fight so well, you and I had this that, discussion that would seem you know, to be the case but it's not at all really um, that is what's new seems to be uh, of interest to everyone. What seems to be old is old news, old hat. And the implication would be that we know all of about that, and it's all in the past. But the long and the short is that through manipulation, and in this case maybe the government and or media, um, we don't know this story at all. That is, people who want to do diligent research and before they would say anything in public that would be just kind of a conjecture or a shot in the dark or uh, just some wild-eyed idea that isn't supported, people like hopefully myself are only going to come out with such a thing if we have really solid evidence. And the information that's out in the media is not anything like that. And it hasn't been that way for years because this... Evidence has been so slow to come out. I've, I've never seen uh, when you say painstaking research. I've never seen someone really cross the T's and dot their eyes. I mean, there is not anything out of place in this. And you work extra hard because you knew you were going to be up against this tide of, of doubt, and uh, you know you're, you're, you were going to be the uh, the brunt, get the brunt of criticism and and calls of conspiracy kook and nut and you know. Whatever. So, so, folks, when I when I tell you that this investigative work product to me is is, uh, I mean, nothing is infallible. But uh, man, I would walk into any courtroom in any venue in anywhere in this country and present this. That's how much, and I've studied this for now for uh, a couple of weeks. I guess it is. And Rex, I got to hand it to you, man. You really did a announcement. You and you and your colleagues did an outstanding job on this. I just want to just really drive that point home. Uh, well, thank you very much. It, it, and again, if I could fly as well as you could be, as well as you can <laughs> investigate, man, I'd be, I'd be out there doing a dogfight. But anyway, all right. So we set the stage, and I, I will say this: this is part one, folks, of, of two parts. 
uh, we're going to bring we're going to bring uh, this gentleman on tomorrow as well, because there is so much here and there is so much critical information. This is now we got what three segments together uh, of this program. We're going to get through, try to get through as much as as possible. But let's start at the beginning and let's start where you want to start because I know you've been working on this um, for this presentation tonight. Go ahead and make your opening statement, if you will, or start where you want. If you want to make an opening statement in terms of, you know, um, you know, if you could like, have your on. tech back up one slide there and look at the map that has, uh, it'd be I O one, image okay. one, in other words. Yep, uh, I'm gonna uh, because of certain things that are taking place. I'm going to do that myself here. Okay. Um, is that uh, okay? There we go. We're we're ready to go. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the crash and, happened on December 11th, just as you said, December 11th, 2013, and it happened near the island of Molokai, which is in the middle of the Hawaiian island chain. Um, I don't see it on my screen, by the way. No, you're going to be on a you're going to be on a delay because of oh, okay, that's probably about a 30 second delay. Very good. And uh, <clears throat> on near the island of Molokai, on the northern side, there's a five square mile or a peninsula. And that's basically called Kalopapa. And this crash happened just off the northwest tip of that uh, peninsula. And uh, there's a runway on the northwest side. It's 2,700 by 75 foot. And it's designated as two different things, either from one side, runway five, or the side that was used, uh, runway five. And coming from the other direction, it would have been runway 23. But uh, there was just a lone pilot of a single-engine Cessna Grand Caravan who took off toward the northeast that afternoon at 3.15, which was, by the way, a scheduled commuter airline flight. And he had with him eight paying passengers. So he had first told the FAA that he was going to Oahu, indeed. That was the scheduled flight. And as he was turning the corner... Uh, toward Oahu, or Honolulu, I should say, which is approximately west. Um, marked on that map on the upper right side, you'll see a little X in the upper right corner. That would have been about where this uh, pilot was at 300 feet, as he said, or he told the FAA. And we know the crash into the water happened at uh, very close to the capital D, that's a little bit to the southwest, if you will, or west of that X. Uh, the map is turned a little bit. Uh, you can see there's the word north there, perhaps, on the far upper right side. Yep. In any event, the D is where the airplane uh, came down, and um, that would so, have actually so. put the, the wind at the pilot's back because the wind was out of the east. So that uh, trajectory so between the X and the D is approximately a westward a heading, and the pilot had an eastward wind of approximately 18 knots uh, to blow him toward the west. So it was okay. uh, he was being sped up by the wind behind him. 
Okay, and, and just so for the people who are listening who don't have the this visual in front of them, what we have is the island, and on the north side of the island, northwest side basically, or near the shore is a runway. That runway goes from southeast or southwest to northeast, or the opposite direction, depending on which uh, which runway you're going to be using or which designation designation of the runway you're going to be using. And then, uh, so, so this aircraft took off at three fifteen with eight paying passengers. Nine altogether, nine people on board altogether. It took off to the northeast, made kind of a left-hand turn, and landed, crashed, if you will, in the water, very close to shore, um, almost, almost even with the runway itself, uh, uh, just west of the the runway, just just right, right offshore on the west side of the uh, island. Okay. The salver or the wreckage person, uh, the president of that company who did the wreckage salve, uh, salvage operation, had said the aircraft was found between two and 300 yards from the shoreline. Uh, although that was, uh, well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, okay. as the pilot was making this turn to Honolulu at that red X or thereabouts, uh, at what he said was 300 feet, he claimed that there was a catastrophic engine failure and that the engine completely stopped. So that issue uh, actually differs from what we see with the evidence. And that was one of the first things that brought me into this investigation and said, hmm, how can that possibly be? We have a commercial airline pilot with 18,000 hours of flight time, and he is taking off from an airport with eight paying passengers. And before he reaches 300 feet, he's made roughly a 90-degree turn. Well, that's just kind of unheard of in the commercial commuter airline pilot world. You don't make such turns that close to the ground. It would have required what he said, would have required him turning uh, almost immediately upon rotation, and that's just uh, something that the FAA, excuse me, FAA frowns upon, and commuter airliners, airline companies such as uh, the one for which this pilot worked, would have had uh, procedures that would have uh, trained their pilots not to do such a thing. So for the director of operations, which he was, this pilot was also the director of operations for that company, for him to make a 90-degree turn before he reached 300 feet in altitude is just mind-boggling for a pilot. Furthermore, with uh, his flight from that red X with with an 18-out wind at his back, to land at the capital D is also mind-boggling because you don't land an airplane downwind when you have any other option. So those were anomalies that uh, really raised red flags in my mind. But as we'll find out later, uh, his story changed, and the evidence certainly doesn't support his story. So if we look at, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. We have uh, a very unusual circumstance in that there was on board in seat 4B, which is on the right side of the aircraft, a young man who has a lot of uh, spearfishing experience and snorkeling as well, 
and he has had um, use of GoPro equipment, which is a small, high-definition camera that can take very high-quality images. Now, he happened to have at his seat two GoPro cameras on a staff, and they were waterproofed, so uh, it was very convenient that he, uh, not in the overhead bin above him or a seat in front of him or at the feet in front of him, he was able to pull out from his seat, literally his lap, in the seat back pocket, this camera equipment, which then he was able to use for the rest of the time. He said uh, after this supposed bang of the aircraft's catastrophic engine failure happened, he turned his camera back on within a few seconds and basically continued rolling until his batteries uh, exhausted themselves. So right. uh, he's got two cameras on this staff, and they're both apparently running. And uh, that's how we come upon this story, which has that video support that is almost unheard of. That is, it's very rare uh, that you'd have this kind of situation. But you, you, as we'll just see... Rex, Rex, hang on a second. Just to be clear here, we have on video, or there exists on video, a complete almost a nearly complete representation or documentation of an air, airplane crash, this particular crash, by one of the passengers from two of yeah. his GoPro cameras, right? In as much as you can see from C4B and out the window and so forth, that's right. the case. And he also uh, uh, shot imagery from inside the cabin. So we have a lot of information. And yet, I'd have to say at the same time, uh, what the NTSB was given, apparently by this uh, videographer, uh, ended up to be uh, less than 19 minutes worth of video. And hmm. what happens there in that video are things that transpired over nearly an hour's worth of time. So it's kind of amazing that there would only be from two different cameras uh, uh, less than 19 minutes worth of video. So uh, one is tempted to think one does not have it all, even though in part we see an, an activity that occurs almost an hour after the crash. So okay. the pilot or the videographer represents that he turned his camera back on and just kept right on rolling. And it was only the running out of battery that stopped his recording. So, as I say, I have no evidence exactly what uh, that was. It's the absence of evidence, except to say that what he's represented seems to suggest we would have a whole lot more video, maybe even eight times as much as we actually have. But anyway, let me back up to part of the rest of the story. I said that the pilot had uh, told the FAA that he was rounding the turn to Honolulu at about 300 feet. Well, by the time he wrote his uh, written representation to the NTSB, he told them that it happened just after he crossed about 500 foot of altitude, that is, altitude above the ground, he said. And yet, we know from the video evidence that he was n in no way above the ground, and he was in no way at 500 feet. So these varying representations of either 300 or 500 feet, uh, whether above ground or not, uh, the video evidence tells us a completely different story. And that's really, well, I'm not sure we should get into it right now. It's kind of detailed as a pilot. But uh, as I mentioned, 
making turns really close to the ground, especially uneven terrain and a coastline and potentially water spray and all of that, is um, just not something you would do. But if we look at the video, which conveniently the videographer has prepared for us, we see that the pilot was probably above a thousand feet before the videographer turned his camera off. We have imagery of the cliffs on the south side of the Kalopapa Peninsula, and we have uh, other site uh, images as of, for example, there's a lighthouse. We know the height of that lighthouse, so we can say um, by the angle, which seems not to change, and the uh, climb rate that the pilot has reached, that is, we can calculate from the time he left the ground to the time he reached certain altitudes, say level with the lighthouse and so forth, we know how fast he was climbing. And we can see the confirmation of that in the video imagery so that we can say very confidently the pilot did not turn or did not have any failure of his engine before uh, reaching a thousand feet. But he's chosen to tell people that it was 300 or 500 feet above ground where that so-called catastrophic engine failure occurred. And so, okay, well, i gotta, I got to stop you. Rex, i got to stop you because we're uh, yep. getting close to a break. Uh, okay. But just to recap here, okay, just to recap, you've got uh, a small plane, Flying out of uh, off the island, you've got a 90 degree turn, unheard of, except maybe uh, the infamous Gitmo turn. You know uh, that pilots have to make when they're approaching Guantanamo, or, or at least that used to be the case. Yeah, you would uh, do that maybe, but not with eight paying passengers behind you. Yeah, it's a little bit a uh, little bit troublesome, and uh, you've got a written statement that is not consistent with the video documentation. We're talking with. Rex about the investigative findings from the Loretta Fuddy plane crash, Loretta Fuddy being the sole fatality in this strange plane crash with uh, just a number of odd circumstances surrounding it. Also, she was the gatekeeper to the Obama birth certificate in Hawaii. We're going to be right back right after these short messages with Rex to get into this more, and we got a lot more about this topic both today and tomorrow. Stay with us. is Rex. He's an aviation and computer expert, aviation expert, uh, nearly three decades in the air, instrument-rated uh, multi-engine plane, investigator or extraordinaire, talking about the uh, strange downing of Loretta Fuddy's plane. And uh, we're going to be getting into all of the intricacies of this, why it matters today. The reason it matters is we have the same people behind this. This is the same template, whether you're talking about, uh, in my view anyway, you're talking about the uh, orchestration of the cover-up of Kennedy or, I mean, take it all the way up to present day. You uh, are seeing the same players uh, in many cases, especially of the most recent events, the same template. Now, uh, and this is a very detailed, yes, um, insightful look as to the mechanisms and ways that go about 
changing a narrative, covering up facts, and hiding the truth. Indeed. Now, um, again, folks, Hagman and Hagman.com for show information and HagmanReport.com where there's going to be some uh, uh, very, uh, there's going to be a recap done of this at the conclusion of this uh, investigative uh, uh, exclusive here. Now, the, um, I just want to remind everyone if you're listening to this and you don't have anything, any, uh, uh, computer in front of you or any way to look at this, you can go to YouTube after hours and, or when you have a chance and you can take a look at the, at the, uh, stills. Again, our guest is Rex talking about Loretta Fuddy and, uh, now she was the gatekeeper of the Obama birth certificate and, uh, well, there's, we know that there was a lot of funny business with respect to that, regardless of who says what. We have not seen anything, uh, uh, demonstrable, any type of demonstrable proof about, uh, her, uh, or his, uh, Obama's, uh, bona fides. Now, what happened to Loretta Fuddy? Ostensibly, she was killed or she died as a result of, uh, a heart attack from, stemming from a plane crash on 12-11-2013, December 11-2013. We're here to tell you that ain't the case. Not the case at all. Rex, um, I'm going to bring you back on. And, uh, you know, if you look, uh, we're just talking here. This is in our opinion. This is an investigative analysis based on our professional opinion, your your investigative opinion. This is all opinion. So if you want to definitely talk and, and, you know, name names and companies, feel free to do so. I mean, I, I think we're, we're not making any accusations. We're just showing the facts as we found them or as you found them. So uh, having said that, the restraints are off. Folks, put your CPACs and trade tables in their full upright lock position, because here we go. And I'll kick it back to you, sir. Yes, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, if we could find uh, image 11 uh, and bring that up on the screen, that'll be good. But it pertains to an interview of the pilot at his company's offices on the Honolulu airport. And it was several days after the crash. And he told the press some very interesting things. He said, all I know is, bang, and I had an unseater panel that was nothing but red and yellow lights. Fire warning was going off. Wait, wait, uh, so, Rex, what's the, what's the, what's the uh, on, on the top of the, oh, there it is, okay. The, image 11, if you can yeah. find that. It's actually uh, slide 13 on this, but go, okay, we got it. Oh, okay. That's okay. Go We're ahead. Fine. Okay, so... If, uh, as a pilot, you look at that kind of a statement, um, there's a lot to be said behind that. That is, particularly when you say the fire warning was going off, bang, that means for a pilot, let's look at our emergency procedures. And did the pilot follow those? Well, we're looking on the next page, which is I have as an image uh, or figure 12, um, there's a smoke and fire emergency procedures checklist citation and uh, that's very relevant here if the fire warning is going off you darn well better deal with emergency procedures of smoke and fire so that citation of the pilot's operating handbook tells us that we uh, need to do some things as a pilot so it says power level lever goes to idle prop control lever goes to feather Fuel condition lever goes to cut off, fuel shut off goes to off, and so forth. Now, the pilot apparently not didn't do that. If you look okay. at the um, NTSB report, it says that after this 
so-called catastrophic engine failure and stoppage of his engine, he verified that his fuel valves were on. Well, that's a very unusual statement. If you have fuel valves and you are interested in their condition after hearing a fire warning, you darn well better be turning them off rather than leaving them on. And uh, he said he was verifying that they were on. Well, if they had been off, either one or both, there would have been a, a warning horn activated and an enunciator panel light would have come on. So verifying that the uh, fuel valves were on really shouldn't take, have taken very much time at all. That is, if you don't hear the warning horn, if you don't see the, the enunciator panel light, those fuel valves are on. But they should be off, by the way. The pilot should be turning them off, and yet that's not what he does at all. He tells the uh, U.S. Coast Guard, which if uh, we have the right slide up, which in my numbering is uh, number 12, yes, you've got it, thank you. Um, at the bottom of that page or slide, uh, beginning with the word Honolulu, and highlighted by these words, after his second attempt to restart the engine failed. Well, apparently the pilot has told the U.S. Coast Guard that he tried to make two engine restart attempts, and they both failed. That's quite something. If you have smoke and fire uh, procedures in front of you, which you should, as certainly as an 18,000-hour pilot, um, you ought to be turning everything off that has fuel involved with it because Makes there sense. could be yeah. major structural damage. You could uh, make a huge fire, potentially, and it says in the underlying portion there, in the, say the middle, uh, one of the underlying pieces is um, an engine restart should not be attempted. So very clearly the evidence that the pilot is representing or has represented to the U.S. Coast Guard is very much against what the pilot's operating handbook uh, would have us do. And furthermore, without the NTSB making any complaint or saying that it's a problem, He's verified to the NTSB that the fuel valves were on. Well, like so many of the things that are wrong with this scenario, like the various altitude claims of where this catastrophic engine failure occurred, the NTSB makes not a peep whatsoever that this or that was a problem. But it was. And they had the evidence in hand, just as I've had, uh, video-wise, for example, in this case, to show that the pilot was not right in saying either 300 feet or 500 feet or what he was doing in the case of a fire warning going off, uh, determining that the fuel valves were on. The NTSB report doesn't say anomalously or uh, incorrectly or against the pilot's operating handbook, which, frankly, I would think would be very relevant to a crash investigation. And... This is not just one thing. I've got a litany of at least 10 things here that are different between what the pilot said he did, what the operating handbook and everything else says you should be doing, and the video evidence confirms that what he had said was not what he did. So there's all of these evidences of things being incorrect or misrepresentations being made that are unresolved, even in the NTSB report. 
they choose not to address themselves to these anomalies, which, as I say, a pilot being coming from the aviation community, these are huge red flags. And maybe there's an answer for it somewhere, but it didn't appear in the NTSB report, and there are contradictions left and right. right. So it's hard for me to understand. Pardon? Well, no, as a pilot, though, um, okay, the pilot said, all I know is bang, and I had an enunciator panel that was nothing but red, yellow lights, and fire warnings uh, was going off. As a pilot, you're going to automatically and instinctively do a series of things in your head and put it yes. into practice. This yes. pilot did not. In fact, did the opposite in, in some That's cases. That's right. All right. Yes. It didn't. I mean, right. he may have jumped into action. But the actions we see him jumping into are not the right actions at all. And uh, for a fire. it's not up to me. It's the pilot operating handbook is very clear about these things. Right. All right. So, so we see that. Okay. And that, folks, is just one of many uh, inconsistencies. And so you've got the pilot saying what he what he did. You got the handbook saying what to do. Um, and you have the, the conditions under which the pilot said he, he had to do the things because of the, the fire or whatever. And uh, then you've got the forensic evidence, and all of them are inconsistent with each other. So, all right. Yes, yes. So maybe we can move to the next slide, which uh, okay. says um, in red near the top was loud like a metal hammer. Got that it. was a passenger in the front in the first row saying that, and that amounts to a mechanical noise. That's also mentioned in the emergency procedures, uh, pilot's operating handbook for the Cessna Grant Caravan. And it says there, uh, an engine failure might be evidenced by mechanical noises. And the big red box caution, uh, one bit below that says, do not attempt to restart an engine that is definitely known to have failed. Well, if you have a loud metal-like hammer and the engine completely stops, let me tell you, that's a mechanical noise, and it's a mechanical failure, and an engine restart should never have been attempted. But a pilot such as myself says, he's got more thousands of hours more than I have. How come he didn't know that? Or at least why wasn't he responding in a way that the rest of the aviation community would think prudent and um, just the normal thing? So those question marks are just big in our minds. Okay. And then so the, we can move maybe to the next slide after that. All right. And the next slide, the slide is titled, Pilot Does Not Follow Ditching Emergency Checklist. Right, right. Okay. That's another thing. The very first one there is what uh, is called in shorthand a mayday. That is, if you have a pilot emergency, uh, you're supposed to generally try to make a mayday call on this emergency frequency, 121.5, give your intention, squawk 7700, and so forth. Um, that's very important, especially in a remote area, so that people who might be able to hear you can come rescue you. That's huge. That's number one on the list. And yet, he claims, the pilot claims, and has made the claim to, I believe, both the NTSB and the U.S. Coast Guard, that he made such a mayday call. And yet, what happens when a pilot makes a mayday call on that frequency, um, all the red lights in all the FAA and other uh, air traffic control facilities go red. You'll see the red lights come on everywhere just by keying the mic uh, for that frequency. And it would not have
have been missed. No one would miss that mayday call. And furthermore, planes were flying overhead, particularly airliners are uh, very much habitual about tuning an extra radio to 121.5 just in case they can be helpful to a fellow pilot who might be in need. And we know that there were several aircraft in the area that were tuned so to 121.5 because uh, within a minute or two after this, um, or actually even before, you'd have to say that is they these aircraft these aircraft in the area heard an ELT that is a, an emergency locator transmitter going off, which means the pilot has uh, had a crash of some kind, and they reported that immediately, and yet this mayday that was claimed uh, before the aircraft hit the ocean uh, was not recorded by anyone. So you'd have to say there is no evidence for any mayday other than the pilot's claim. And that's very anomalous. That's very unlike a an 18,000-hour pilot would do. Uh, let me anyway, ask you, you this. Well, hold on a second. Let me ask you. Would there be a reason, a nefarious reason, why a pilot would would not want to give a mayday because of perhaps documenting certain things, or, or I mean, I guess yes, my question is why was that? I, okay, I could okay. in this case, which is difficult to do with as little evidence as we've laid out so far, but uh, the evidence in its totality would eventually support this. That is that uh, maybe the pilot wanted to leave the rescue in certain hands. Um, there is a another pilot in the area who will become involved, and um, he's given accolades later as uh, maybe saving lives kind of thing. And uh, if the pilot had given a mayday and it was heard by anybody, um, there would have been nothing to be said or done by uh, another pilot in the area, which is not to say no one would appreciate what he's done. Right. However... Uh, if you want to manipulate a mayday call and say you made it, but you actually didn't, uh, perhaps you were leaving it over to uh, someone else. Now, that's, that's really difficult to say, with again, with as little evidence as we've laid out. However, let me just jump to one thing that we'll see very shortly, and actually I saw it flits by on your screen. That is, this other pilot who eventually uh, came upon the crash uh, does report it and uh, is later given the kudos for uh, um, possibly having saved lives and kind of thing. But we find out only later that uh, not through anything he said, by the way, or anyone else has said, at least in the media or any official document that I'm aware of, that this particular pilot who just happened to be in the area within what seems maybe a mile or two um, is actually one who has worked for this same commuter airline company that has had the crash. And he's worked hand in glove with these people. That is, it was his director of operations who's put this plane down into the water. It was his boss who owned the airline that contracted with Television programs such as Hawaii Five O and Lost to provide helicopters, which this particular gentleman flies day in and day out. So he was flying the helicopters of this small aviation company, for which both uh, 
operations the pilot of this crashed Cessna Grand Caravan uh, worked. So it's just beyond coincidence, we'd have to say, that that would be the person. And of course, not he's, he's not flying his favorite helicopter that day. He's flying in an airplane that he, on Facebook, called the Dusty Crop Hopper, a little clunky 1977's uh, Grumman uh, airplane, which might, and he's got his girlfriend with him, so it might appear to everyone that they're just out joyriding and so forth, but he's there with the video and camera equipment that, uh, you know, real high-end stuff, probably. This um, happens to be in the area. Uh, was able to take imagery and video of the crash, and uh, that's just kind of very much coincidental, of course. We're going to see a lot of coincidences develop here, and a lot of people that you wouldn't normally think would be around, including, oh, there I just tease you a little bit, military, government officials, Hollywood is tied here. Hollywood is tied as... You know, so okay, Rex. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pull you or push you. Um, go ahead and uh, continue. Well, so. that's that's interesting you mentioned. I certainly alluded to it when I said uh, that uh, this particular commuter airline company, at least in its uh, daughter and sister companies, has provided this helicopter uh, support for these various television programs, which of course mm-hmm. are doing acting and uh, all kinds of. Um, not true-to-life scenes. I mean, they're making them as true-to-life as they can. And these are the experts, the very experts who are involved with that kind of thing, who are involved with this particular crash. So that's just amazing stuff. Kind of like a Hollywood production. Yes, yes. It is a Hollywood production, we'll have to say. And uh, that's in the opinion realm at this point, but I can support it, so... Well, Well, just as a legal disclaimer, you know, we are presenting this, uh, the facts here, the documentation, the investigative results here. Uh, there's, there's no accusations just because we mentioned someone's name or, uh, there's, there are no accusations of criminal conduct here. That's not what we're doing. We're just telling you the findings as Rex has, uh, found them and his colleagues, uh, colleague, in particular, found these, and uh, you, ladies and gentlemen, make up your mind from the evidence and documentation provided. Again, yes. we're not, uh, you know, we're not making any accusations of criminality. However, you make up your mind. Go ahead, sir. And you can go to the next slide, which says prohibited EPL manipulation at the top. It's already there. And uh, there's a particular lever on the on the quadrant, so-called throttle quadrant of this uh, airplane that the pilot was flying, the Cessna Grand Caravan. And uh, on the left is an actual image of this roughly 12 seconds, I believe, after the video began again, subsequent to the uh, claimed catastrophic engine failure. And that leftmost lever, which in a small inset in the, say, left two-thirds of the image uh, of a standard quadrant uh, there, the little red-handled lever, is so-called an emergency power lever, and it's in its standard full-aft position all the way back. And the pilot's operating handbook tells one and all that uh, that lever is not to be moved except in the case of a fuel control unit malfunction. 
Now, if you have a catastrophic engine failure and a hammer-like bang and um, things like that happening, that can pretty well tell you there's nothing wrong with the fuel control unit. And so operating that lever is really prohibited, basically says the lower section of white. Operation of the emergency power lever is prohibited with the power lever out of the idle position. Well, that black lever is the main power lever, and you can see in the lower left image that he's got both of those out of their idle position, and he's advanced that emergency power lever, which is basically going to flood the engine probably, um, but at this Rex, point... Rex, where, where did this image come from? It's a still image on the left hand, folks, for those uh, just listening to this, of the pilot's arm over the main control area there, uh, the operation uh, of the uh, power level, level levers, and... Uh, yeah, so where did this image come from on, on the left there? Because it's it was a in the videographer's uh, taken yeah. recorded uh, imagery. And Imagine it's just that. one small frame. Now, he's got a high-definition high camera equipment, two of them, redundant, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, that's probably just mm, 5% or so of the full image. So you can right. imagine the full image is pretty glorious. No, so, but... but uh, yeah. Yeah, but this is clear that power, the EPL, the emergency power level lever is up along with the, uh, um, with, with the, uh, power lever, lever itself, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, that's out of the is, idle position, apparently. Right, right, okay. And, uh, we can come back to this because it's, it's indicative once we've seen a lot of evidence, uh, of further things going wrong here. So okay. if you want to note that, we can just come back to it later. So noted. But we can move on to the next slide for now. Okay, and the next is, one is the the pilot said, all I know is bang. Yeah, okay. the fi- engine fire detection system, which is uh, that white portion, is also an excerpt from the pilot's operating handbook. And it okay. tells us basically how the uh, fire warning, which was said to have gone off, uh, would have been operating. That is, there are loops, uh, loops of metal wire, and those are basically set up to be able to detect whether the temperature in a particular area of the engine compartment has gone over a certain number. So if you get near the exhaust, it says, uh, I believe, 450 degrees Fahrenheit. If you were on the firewall, you'd need something 650 degrees Fahrenheit. If you have, uh, well, you can read the numbers there yourself, but right. those are really pretty high numbers, and uh, it takes that to set off the fire warning. And yet, there's also underlined in red an unusual note, um, unusual in the sense that it's relevant here, that is, there's a test switch labeled fire detect test located adjacent to the enunciator panel, and when depressed, the engine fire enunciator panel will illuminate that is, all the little uh, lights of that panel will illuminate as kind of a test, and the horning horn will sound. So there is an artificial way to achieve what the pilot said um, happened uh, juxtaposed to this uh, bang that he talks of. So the pilot's representation is as if this uh, 
red and yellow light phenomenon and the fire warning horn going off was a natural consequence of uh, this this bang. Mm. But there's evidence further that suggests otherwise. Okay. If we look at the very next slide, you'll see above an underwater image of uh, the engine compartment, which has apparently its cowling uh, blown away, probably by water. And there are places that one might look for the evidence of a fire. Now, when you're going through the air and you have a fire, uh, that bespeaks smoke. And uh, there's, interestingly, no evidence of smoke that one can see on the engine there at all. And we'll see that's confirmed later by inspection on the salvage barge of the engine. At least with any imagery I've been able to see, one does not see any smoke, which right, by it itself doesn't doesn't mean little, anything necessarily. But, which what Rex is describing here, Rex, I just want to interject this for people listening, is the aircraft is in the water, it's submerged in the cowling engine, the cowling is blown away, the submerged engine the uh, around it shows absolutely no indication of fire damage, smoke, scorching, or anything like that. And that's what this shows. We're up against the bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Hagman and Hagman. And, um, folks, uh, let me tell you something. This, this is, we're rolling out evidence right now, evidence to show that what you've been told about the ostensible death of Loretta Fuddy and the cr- aircraft, uh, crash itself is not true. Stay right where you're at. Stay tuned. Talking with Rex. and computer company executive for many years who has been investigating the strange death of the Obama birth certificate Obama birth certificate gatekeeper Loretta Fuddy in what was a plane crash even though that's not the way she perished only later after everybody was taken off the plane there's some strange videos and and other things that have gone around we've covered this issue extensively but we have Rex with us who is getting much more in-depth details along with visual uh, presentation as well if you watch us live on YouTube or even catch the archive for the uh, visual presentation and I'm not sure if we can post the the presentation on our website no no okay. we're not going to do that but we will post a recap of this investigation with um, in coordination with Rex because this folks this is the smoking gun I believe that'll blow the lid off everything Let's go back to Rex. Rex, let's pick right up where you left off. On that same slide that we were looking at a bit ago, uh, the middle image is of the enunciator panel, and it shows the condition of the lights uh, if there were an engine fire. That is, all those lights are independent, and only the engine fire light at the upper left would come on. Now, in some extreme circumstances, you might have another one or two or three come on. But the pilot's claim was he had an enunciator panel that was nothing but red and yellow lights. And so if one goes through the entire litany of things that could be wrong, 
but we know weren't wrong, so therefore those lights wouldn't be on. There's very few lights that uh, could even conceivably have been on. And the next slide would show you that if you had literally all the lights that could have come on for any reason, um, if they had come on as well, you'd see that upper image. And that would be something that would not bespeak a pilot's statement of nothing but red and yellow lights. That is, it's just a small collection of lights. But what he said to happen was that the enunciator panel showed nothing but red and yellow lights. And the fire warning was going off. Well, now the fire warning is another matter. That is, we talked about what it takes to set off the fire warning, but we don't hear on the video's uh, audio track uh, any fire warning going off, which is, of course, anomalous. Why don't we hear it? We hear another warning horn going off. It's very clear. It's very loud, in fact. So why is it we don't hear the fire warning? And I have to qualify that and say, actually, we do hear the fire warning going off. But curiously, it only starts going off 36 seconds after the ditching. We just saw the engine underwater. Uh, it would have been immediately robbed of its oxygen. It would have been invaded totally by ocean water. Um, it would have stopped, and we measured it less than three-tenths of a second after hitting the water. Um, has no oxygen underwater, cannot burn. Uh, that is, its uh, appetite for air is so voracious that there's just no time uh, that uh, would be spent in combustion once you hit the water. And immediately, once that engine stops, it's going to be starting its cooling, and it, around the surrounding water temperature was just like 79 degrees. So all of those criteria that the fire sensor loops had were in the hundreds of degrees, and it only started, that is the fire warning horn, only came on 36 seconds after ditching and went on for another 14 seconds. Now, really, given that evidence, there's really only one possible way that that could have happened, and that is that the pilot, spending his last seconds at the control, had to have pressed that test button, that fire uh, enunciator panel light and fire detect test button. So that would have accomplished what he said, and that is found on the audio track 36 seconds later. And I actually have an, a friend of mine interviewed the one of the passengers who sat in the front row, and he said he saw that panel full of enunciator lights all lit up. So there's confirmation that it happened, but that confirmation is 36 seconds after ditching, which, speaking as a pilot, the only way it could have happened is somebody pressing that button. Those two buttons, I should say. Gotcha. And anyway, we can move on. All right. And uh, in the next figure, we see something we haven't spoken of yet, that uh, he made... Uh, that is, the pilot claimed to have made a passenger briefing. Well, there is no passenger briefing on the audio of the ditching track, at least while they're in the air, and actually for several seconds after that. So uh, it would appear that the pilot uh, didn't really make the claimed briefing that he 
said he did. Oh, okay, fact, Rex, so, when, you, when you say when you say briefing, you, you, are you saying um, this is your captain speaking? You know, we'll be flying um, at, a, at an altitude, yeah, or are you saying, hey, brace for impact? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we, and he in our one of the first slides we looked at, he reported to the U.S. Coast Guard, and uh, he said he prepped the passengers and crew for a water landing and had them don PFDs, which are personal flotation devices. Um, well, that would be very appropriate. However, if the pilot had done that, uh, among his other busy, busy tasks, we would have heard that. If he was on the PA system, we would have heard that. And if he had said that, uh, we very likely would have seen people pull out their flotation devices and put them on. But guess what happens? Nothing. We don't hear any of that. We don't see a single passenger reaching for a life jacket anywhere. And we wouldn't know that except that we actually have video from this videographer. So all of those are very amazing things. And once again, contrary to the very clear evidence that almost cannot lie, you have the evidence in hand that says just that did not happen. Could not have happened. What you're seeing are, are these passengers not preparing. I mean, they're going down into the the ocean. They're not reaching for man. I'd be I'd be scratching, clawing, you know, for my life jacket, and you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, but you don't see any of that. And anomalously, uh, we have we'll see later, and the ABC radio or TV broadcast network of uh, showing various uh, clips of this. And uh, in one clip, they say all the passengers know that they're about to go into the water. And another clip says just the opposite, that none of them knew what was about to hit them. So even uh, those two news reports uh, couldn't agree. Maybe they were done by separate groups of people or whatever, but they had the same raw information at hand, presumably. But in, in any event, there's no audio support for the pilot making any briefing. And uh, he said, supposedly, that he told the passengers to don their life jackets before exiting. Well, we have imagery from the videographer again, and the first six people, none of them are wearing life jackets. Actually, just one is wearing a life jacket, but his life jacket was not inflated, and none of the others had their life jackets on. So that's a guy listening to Steely Dan in his head uh, headset there, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, he's that, that is the videographer. Um, but you, know, you have to at least ask the question: Are these stiff-necked, uh, stiff-necked recalcitrants, non-compliant types, and all of them? Is that what we have on this flight? Or maybe there's a pattern here of the pilot saying something and it not being quite the way it really happened. So we have to there's the evidence, folks. Yeah, there's the evidence, or there's the documentation uh, submitted as evidence. You've got a, 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 a panel, a screen panel there. If you look on YouTube, if you're listening to this, it'll be a Global Star, uh, BTR. There it is. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, uh, seconds, moments after the landing. <laughs> One person. Yeah. All you right. can go to the next slide, and you'll see another statement that the pilot made. He told the assembled press conference on this company's uh, uh, airport offices, he said he told the passengers to stay away from the airplane. Well, there's uh, an image that has literally everyone in the view of the camera's lens. All nine are there, uh, even though the pilot is 
off there to the left with his single finger. Um, all the passengers, basically all but two of them, the pilot and another guy, are hanging on to the airplane. So you have to ask, did the pilot really tell the people that? that? And if he did, why don't they listen to the pilot? I mean, I have never seen an aircraft incident where the pilot tells them one command and essentially nobody does what he says. I, right. When has that ever happened in your experience? I mean, we've generally all been on airplanes. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Now, no, it has to no. be said that the pilot uh, is saying things that probably would be good to say, but did he really say them, or does it just look good on the record if he says he said them? Obviously, something else that, is going on here. Yeah, yeah. That would be one way to look at it, and maybe, as you use the word nefarious at some point, maybe there's something else going on, too. But uh, we can move ahead several slides, maybe to the figure 25, if you can find that. Oops. And the last has, frame of the videographer? Take yeah, off? yeah, exactly. Okay. Good, good, good. Yep. And uh, here we're looking at uh, the last frame of the so-called takeoff video. That is, the videographer's videos uh, were in two pieces. That is, there's a takeoff portion, and then as he related uh, in media reports later, he turned off his camera. There was uh, very soon thereafter, within a few seconds, a bang. And within a couple seconds, couple, three seconds, he says, he turned his camera back on and just kept on rolling. So uh, this is the last frame of the first portion of that video, and it shows um, where he is. And we recognize the, in the far distant uh, view there of the, of the plane's uh, uh, tail portion, we see the cliffs of the northern part of Molokai. So we have a pretty close idea of his direction of flight at that moment. And we, of course, know where the sun's rays were at that point in time. And that right side image has a yellow arrow saying direction of the sun's rays at that red X. And so what are you so telling us know, here? Yeah. What are you uh, telling we, us here, we know the airplane was headed approximately 320 and that that would have put the sun's rays essentially uh, orthogonal to the to the wings. That is, it would have been off the left wing, pretty much straight on. And the direction of the sun rays in the videographer's camera lens there would have been in that way. Um, just one added note, if you look at the map, there is a little yellow arrow and arc there from the red X. And that would have been a prudent choice uh, if one considers the wind, that is, uh, he had the wind coming out of the east to turn into the wind if he couldn't make the runway. Would have been the right thing to do. And um, implicitly, he uh, apparently couldn't make the runway. But maybe some would say, he, at 300 feet, 500 feet, it might be difficult. But in fact, we know it was more like a 1,000 or more feet. In fact, the videographer later related in an, a media report that the, the descent was from between 1,000 and 1,500 feet. Well, that sounds actually very close to the evidence we have in hand. And so maybe that was just a slip-up in dis disclosing that, as they call it often in legal circles, an admission. 
position counter to uh, one's interest. Mm-hmm. So those are important. But anyway, um, and this might give us insight as to why the pilots said to the NTSB uh, and the FAA this 300 or 500 foot altitude. Um, okay. And where we know the plane landed actually was a, a good distance there. If he could have used that distance to come back to the airport, and even at uh, a fast rate of speed going the opposite way you'd like to down a runway, you could have at least uh, had good brake friction. And even though you might have overrun the end of the airport or the air uh, the runway, uh, probably you would have had a lot less damage to the airplane. It might have flown again. The injuries probably would have been less to the passengers, and you could have had uh, rescue crews probably there just that much faster. Right. So it's a, it's a big question as to why those things unfolded the way they did. But let's move on to the next frame. Okay, there we go. And uh, that has first frame of the crash video, is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. And there we are looking at uh, the direction. There's a yellow arrow again in the upper left map, and at the end of that arrow is an R. That's very close to where we uh, see the plane begins in the second portion. And that was said to have been just a few seconds, so at maximum from what was said, maybe five or six seconds. And yet, notice how far we are from that red X. So some of these uh, representations that have been made are either not accurate or maybe not truthful. Uh, So, And we're also faced in a very different direction by the time that starts. That is, note that direction of the sun's rays, and essentially the airplane was headed directly into the sun. And we see that by the shadows that are cast. If you move to the next frame, it's kind of a half frame, Um, On the right side, you see a yellow line pointed to um, the edge of the passenger's, or that is the videographer's uh, window frame. And you can see he's just eking a little bit of sun onto that, which means now, after a second of turn to the left, after being head-on into the sun, the sun is beginning to break on that window frame. So we know exactly the direction of that flight at the initial portion of the video, and it was very different from the end of the first flight. The sun is in a different position, and we're going to see that the altitude is very different, and that might be a reason that we hear the numbers 300 and 500, because um, if we are left to calculate, which we can, by the way, uh, the height at that R in the left image where the second uh, crash portion of the video starts, we know that that was approximately uh, 250 feet. So if the pilot says he was at 300 feet when the bang occurs, an aviation person very quickly says, oh yes, of course, you're going to lose a few feet as you have to lower the nose and recover some speed because if you're climbing out of an airport, you've got the nose high and you won't be able to maintain that kind of flight attitude if, without engine power. So you would lose a little feet by having or several feet, probably in the range of 50 feet, which is very coincidence 
very much a coincidence to say um, that you'll be at roughly 250 feet. And we know that ditching portion takes almost exactly 30 seconds. So we've been able to calculate. We know the configuration of that airplane. We see uh, imagery of the flap setting and so forth. We uh, we know that uh, he was probably maintaining a certain airspeed within the ditching checklist parameters. And we hear the stall warning horn. So we know his configuration pretty closely to, to be able to say that it was probably 250 feet above the water when that ditching video started. But right. that implies and is very different from where the pilot was when he ended the takeoff segment. Even though he said something different, the evidence is that it was very different. And that's corroborated and confirmed by this great distance from the X, the red X where the supposed catastrophic engine failure happened, to the R where he would have continued. So okay, how so would he have gotten from the X to the R? All it's, right. And w- yeah, so you're showing inconsistencies between the statement and the, what the video shows, just for the, the foundational aspects of, of the uh, listening audience. What, 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 you're, what you're providing here is uh, documentation that shows, look, what was said and what the video shows. Two dramatically different things, a- attitude, altitude, um, uh, distance, all misrepresented or mistakenly uh, provided, right? Yes. Thank all you. right. I just yeah. I just want to make sure that we we hit that. This is all important because you know it's it's often said among uh, among investigators, non credentialed investigators. Oh well, you're just throwing stuff out there. No, no. Look at this. This research is incredibly detailed. Okay, sir. Go ahead. We can move ahead to the slide that has a litany of other audio anomalies, and which shows an audio track as typically represented on a computer. Now, when this ditching portion of the video continues, that is the second portion, um, as if to corroborate what the witnesses told the police, um, the witnesses all that told the police, all that spoke to the police, said that the cabin went quiet. Everything went quiet, is what they said. And yet, there's a huge anomaly here. That is, in that ditching video, there's six seconds worth of very quiet. The only thing one hears is a rustling of the videographer, apparently with his camera, and no engine noise, no propeller noise, no nothing. It's very quiet. But then, about six seconds into that audio, as if one swip, uh, flipped a switch, you hear an engine noise that's running at better than 15,000 RPM. And you say, how could that be? How in the world could that be? That is, we don't hear an engine spooling up as if restarted by the pilot. I mean, he says he tried to do this, do that, but he failed twice. This is a successful attempt to bring it at, at least within operating range. Um, of 15,000 plus RPM, that's an anomaly. How could that be? And it suggests, and not without other support, that there's other shenanigans going on here. That is, 
if we look at that moment where the engine appears in the audio, it just is like the flip of a switch. And sure enough, there's a little audio anomaly at that point, which is strong evidence that there were two pieces of audio spliced together. And when you do that and don't have the proper zero crossing and so forth, you're going to get a little glitch. And sure enough, at that very moment, you don't get a spooling up, you get an audio glitch, which, as I say, is evidence to uh, electronic audio editing types that that's, that's probably the splicing of two different audios. And that would explain that. But it doesn't further, explain... Well, that, that, that's further uh, verified by the next slide that, that shows the, um, the, 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 uh, the kind of the white noise, right? The, the background... <laughs> Yeah, the next slide is a spectrogram of the audio uh, as shown in the Nightline video, which is uh, also further anomalous to this. That is, there's very strange things going on. And uh, if we look at the Nightline audio, there are many things in that audio that don't appear in the NTSB video. And that's also quite perplexing. Um, there's a lot similar, mind you. I'm not saying it's a different piece of uh, audio, but in the Nightline audio, we see uh, other sounds, what I have called a, a rumbling noise. In fact, two different rumbling noises and kind of an undulating fog of sound in that, and that's kind of what that sonogram shows. But it's also overlaid with uh, narration. There's both a narrator and the videographer speaking throughout that. And it all combines to obfuscate and make difficult to hear what's going on. But uh, these rumbling sounds I mentioned, there are two of them that come in at different points, no obvious juncture. They would, and in fact, have been identified even by Cessna caravan pilots as probably being propeller noise. And yet there's two of them, and they're at different frequencies. One is three times the other. So there's only one engine on a Cessna Grand Caravan, so they can't be uh, both, at least, uh, propeller noises, because it would be speak two different propeller noises. But we don't need to speculate on that for very long, because the NTSB evidence, that is, of the raw audio, doesn't have any rumbling sounds on it whatsoever, and it's clean of the narration obfuscation that uh, one hears only in that segment. So uh, it's fortunate that we can resolve these discrepancies between one and another. However, one does have to ask, why would anyone put in sounds on a potentially, you know, an item or a piece of evidence that is under NTSB investigation? Why would one obfuscate what's going on with such a thing? One would think if you're doing investigative journalism, that you want to get to the nuts and bolts of facts and not do anything that would obfuscate anything. But unfortunately, what we're talking about is not just one little thing. This is, in fact, just evidence, one piece of evidence of a type of things that happens again and again. And Rex, again. 
I, I got to stop you right there because we're heading uh, toward the uh, top of the hour here. Let me ask you this: okay. can, you, can you can you stay with us just for a f- few more minutes here? Because I, you're coming okay. back tomorrow, uh, but okay. I don't want to leave this. Okay, yeah, uh, folks, you're seeing the. Uh, this is evidence documentation that nothing is as it was presented to be. Uh, our guest is Rex. He's an aviation computer expert, tw- nearly 30 years um, in the aviation industry, uh, pilot uh, as well. Uh, pilot certified, certified as a pilot in uh, uh, multi and, and single engine aircraft, laying out the groundwork, the necessary, tedious, yes, but necessary groundwork to show that he's got the evidence from his investigation, and, and along with his colleague, Butter Dizillion, but combining, I mean, you're getting it first here. This is the evidence that things are not right. That's right. And we'll be back with Rex right after these short messages. Just a quick announcement. Thursday, we have Dr. Michael Lake. Friday, Dr. Ted Breuer. And tomorrow, Rex will be back with us, as well as right after this break. Stay with us. Funny why it matters. You're going to find that out in a big, big way. You know, it's got like a big reveal at the end, right? And it will be. Rex is our guest doing the investigation that government investigators won't, doing the oversight that other government investigators won't. He's agreed graciously to hang over with us. He's going to be with us tomorrow as well for part two and the conclusion of this. But folks, stay with us on this because this is, this is critical information and, and it's, to me, it's it's irrefutable uh, when you look at this in detail. You know, it makes me think, boy, you look at the island of Hawaii, oh, man, and the waters of the Pacific, regardless of the um, uh, regardless of the reason, does it make you long to get away? I, it, me, I'd yeah. love to get away. If you want to put the holiday rush behind you, that chaos that you have, folks, and you want to relax in the Caribbean, you can do so. This holiday season, spend your time relaxing on the beach instead of cooking and cleaning up after your relatives. We found this amazing getaway at this amazing price, even more amazing price. It's the Pineapple Beach Club in Antigua. Right now, for just for 99 bucks a, a person per night, you can enjoy an adult only, and by adults only, I mean 16 and above, uh, all-inclusive holiday getaway on a white sandy beach. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com or call 800-772-8711 to make your reservation today. Uh, my son is stepson's having a, a destination wedding. In fact, uh, this is the company. You can't beat the price. You cannot beat the price for under 100 bucks per person per night. And it's all-inclusive. Meals, snacks, beverages, yes, even the alcohol, the wine at dinner, uh, the resort activities, all taxes and service charges are included. They've got five restaurants on site at the Tranquility Spa, two freshwater pools, windsurfing, snorkeling, kayaking, sailing, and so much more. Boy, what a great resort. In a couple send you 30 hours. Absolutely, man. Tranquility Spa. I need tranquility. <laughs> and and it, it, I've, look, I've seen this. This is just a fantastic 
Resort, uh, 30 minutes from the airport in the capital city of St. John's. It encompasses 30 acres of tropical foliage, wild blossoms. It's just beautiful. 365 beaches in Antigua. It's located in the Caribbean. It's the largest English-speaking leeward island, and it's known for its just gorgeous weather, pristine white sand beaches, and colorful festivals. Oh, never let them say that we're not multicultural. Well, if you're ready, when you're ready, and you must be ready, please send me, but when you're ready to leave the chaos behind this year and get some well-deserved R&R. Aren't you ready for that? I am. Don't wait. This offer expires soon. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com or call 800-772-8711. That's 800-772-8711 to book your all-inclusive holiday. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com. That's pineapplebeachclub.com for less than $100 per night per person, 16 and up. You can enjoy everything I just mentioned and much more, much more. That's pineapplebeachclub.com. You don't want to miss out on this offer. See the website for complete details, folks. That's pineapplebeachclub.com. Go to hagmanreport.com, click on the link, or hagmanandhagman.com and click on the link. Our guest is Rex. He's a, an expert in aviation and computer. Uh, Stan is not going to be with us tonight. He's ill. Uh, Rex is going over this. He's agreed to stay a little longer going over this. Uh, the, the case, the evidence that he's uncovered through his investigation. Rex, let's uh, let, let's uh, move on. Uh, saddle up and uh, let's rock and roll. Yes, thank you. We have, let me circle back on one main point, which is uh, basically this idea that almost none of the representations of the pilot were as a were in fact that is he's made representations to the media to the NTSB to the FAA to the US Coast Guard and time after time point after point these things are just not borne out by the evidence and another one of those is in the NTSB report that I was just staring at said the pilot observed that all the engine gauges were displaying zero well of course the fuel gauges wouldn't be reporting zero but neither would the interstage turbine temperature that would take minutes to cool down and in fact the uh, engine manufacturer and the NTSB said there was an intense internal fire going on in that engine and so it could not have been zero the oil temperature would also take minutes to cool down after a complete stoppage so these representations of the engine gauges displaying zero just cannot be true, and the evidence doesn't support what the pilot has said. Uh, if you have um, image IB4, that's relevant at this point. Um, right. Again, neither is that engine instrument uh, showing zero as the pilot represented, but it also shows, frankly, that the engine is running. It supports the fact that we have this engine sound going on in the background very clearly, and we hear it again and again in the ABC News reports, and the further evidence in IB4, if you can pull that up, is a view of the uh, fuel flow gauge and the upper images uh, of a, a fuel flow gauge on an airplane that's just sitting at the ramp. But the lower image is the one is one uh, taken roughly 12 seconds or so after the start of the ditching video. And it shows that the pilot and the airplane is burning approximately 17 gallons per hour, showing over 100 pounds per hour of fuel burn. 
Now, you'll recall that in the case of the represented situation of a catastrophic engine failure, a stoppage, all of this smoke and fire, a pilot needs to be shutting down all the fuel everywhere so it doesn't go to the fire. But sure enough, there's a major amount of fuel going out to that engine. So one way or another, and there's no way out, the pilot was not doing the right stuff at this point. But it appears by really all the evidence that that engine, frankly, was running normally. The sounds that we hear in the audio track are of a normally running engine. And everything we see evidence-wise supports that, except what the pilot is saying. So that's just There you have it. Okay. If we look at figure 32, we can hopefully see what I was uh, talking about a couple minutes ago, that is this anomaly between the one and the other video portion. That is, at the end of the first video portion, we see uh, a known altitude roughly between 950 and 1100 RPM, or feet in altitude, and the pilot was said to have gone just a couple seconds beyond that before the bang supposedly happened. But what happens is that we see the start of the second video being that uh, arc on the left side and the altitude being 255 feet. If things as were as uh, represented by the pilot, uh, well, uh, we'll say if things were going as uh, shown by the evidence, the pilot had plenty of evidence to, or I'm sorry, the pilot had plenty of altitude to make the airport. That is from that altitude, which was not as he represented. Uh, he could have made a complete glide all the way back to runway five and safely landed that airplane without any danger to anyone. However, what he does apparently is repositions away from the airport. Now, it's just mind-boggling that if you have a catastrophic engine failure that you would turn your airplane away from safety in an airport. But that's exactly what the evidence shows, that the pilot had no intention, apparently, of going back to that airport. He apparently wanted to ditch this airplane. And that's mind-boggling. All right. So, he, so you, you've he impeached He threw away the... his altitude. Uh, Pardon? Wow. Go ahead. No, you, you've impe- you, essentially you've impeached the statements of the uh, pilot, or at least, if not, if that's too harsh of a, a, a characterization, you've at least shown through your investigation and research that the, the statements of the pilot to the NTSB and the NTSB basically to the, uh, the, the, to the public as well as uh, the pilots to the authorities and everyone else to their, the pilot to the public, it's, uh, it didn't happen the way they said it happened. Based on their own. And if it were just one detail or two, we'd probably have to overlook it because we wouldn't see much of a pattern with that. But this right. pattern is essentially universal. Almost okay. every single detail that the pilot has represented is not as it was, not as he okay. said. All right. All right. Um, yeah. It, it, let's take a little bit more f- further if we can here because so we, we've got yeah. a plane nine nine people uh Loretta Fadi's on on board other passengers on board including one passenger who's recording the essential well, you know basic the whole thing almost you know uh, at least the I don't want to say the whole thing recording selectively recording or 
we're 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 provided with selective um, videos or video footage of this incident. All right. Um, now what? So he ditches the plane. Yeah. In well, the let water. me just highlight one fact um, that we hear on the audio track in just one case, one of the ABC audio tracks, which as the others purport to show the video and audio down in the ditching scenario. Now, one of those contains an anomaly that uh, is very, very important. It shows the engine winding down from a high RPM to zero, just as one would expect in a case where an engine is running and it's doused by ocean water. However, what we see in all the other videos including the NTSB video, is that that winding down to zero is not there. And it's impossible to imagine anything other than human manipulation of that fact. That is, somebody wanted to cover up the fact that that was a running engine and that it got doused by ocean water. That is huge. Wow. Wow. And it occurs in the NTSB video as well. Now, I can't tell you the name of the person who did that, but it happened in three different videos that we have. That is, two ABC audio videos and the NTSB video, but the one that we have is uh, from ABC, the World News Tonight, shows that engine winding down by the ocean water ingestion. So... okay. It's right. impossible to imagine that someone would say, well, let's put that in there, even though it didn't happen. It must have been the original. And the others, someone manipulated. And so okay. there's strong evidence that uh, there's manipulation of the evidence in this scenario. All right. And uh, I, so maybe I, it's just. Yep. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I want to get through as much of, of this as possible. Let's go to the bottom of the hour, if, if that's okay with you. Um, it is. So, okay, if we can squeeze in as much information in this amount of time as possible, because this, this, folks, this gets just gets worse and worse and worse, or better and better, better, depending on you know your outlook on this. So, go ahead. Yeah. And, uh, well, right. I appreciate that. I, I think. Uh, well, let me see how much time we have. A quarter of an hour. I think really going right to. Uh, one of the big ones is appropriate. If you can look at 1A1 or IA1 there, the so-called G changeover, and bring that up on your screen. Um, the number? I think um, that's... Let's see here. We're okay. The scenario is that we are in the water now with the videographer, and all of the passengers are able to be seen. And frankly, they're not scattered around as uh, was represented, excuse me, but they're all in the same uh, video frame. And uh, that in itself is amazing. It's also contrary to what they represented. But what we see is two different images there side by side. On the left, the major image, and then a right on the right, another one. And it says NTSB 750 time marker. That is... Uh, these images are just 37 seconds apart. And we see Loretta Fuddy uh, in the company of her deputy director uh, there on the left image. We know it's 
she because of the characteristic and unique shoe that she's wearing. We see her uh, curvy frame, if you will. She weighed 220 pounds at five foot two, so uh, she had that kind of a frame. And uh, if you look and see that uh, deputy director standing in the left frame, uh, he's apparently standing on the ocean floor because he's got a life jacket that doesn't touch the water except just in maybe a few inches at the front. That is, the body of that life jacket is not touching the water. And uh, actually, if you look further away, uh, higher up on that same frame, you see another passenger also with his life jacket completely out of the water, which uh, begins to suggest that maybe it wasn't too deep there. So that's uh, an interesting fact that uh, we need to take note of. But we also see uh, uh, a difference going on between the left and right frame. And that is 137 seconds later on the right, after the videographer has just taken a small hiatus of those 37 seconds or so, showing uh, not too much of anything going on, but pointing his camera at other directions. When he comes back those 37 seconds later, a lot of things have changed. Uh, a person who wasn't wearing a life jacket in the first and left image is all of a sudden wearing a life jacket. So something happened there. And if we look at uh, the deputy director and who he has beside him, we see now very different uh, uh, shoes. And that, uh, are you at the right picture, by the way? It no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm digging for this. Um, I show uh, it as IA1. All right, we're, we're at we're at infant life jackets versus adult life jackets. <clears throat> which well, that's does show... another matter. We can see that okay. uh, the claim that the NTSB made in its report was that Loretta Fuddy uh, was found to be wearing an infant life jacket with only uh, one of its two chambers being filled with air. That is, one of the chambers uh, didn't even have the CO2 cartridge that fills it uh, expended. However. Okay. We can see that that information is not correct because we have an image that apparently other people didn't see of Loretta Fuddy right beside the airplane. And both chambers, upper and lower, are inflated. So there must have been an expenditure of those both those CO2 cartridges. And furthermore, it appears not to be uh, an infant life jacket as represented. It's an adult life jacket, just as we see several other people wearing. Now, the person, if we look at that upper left image, the person right next to her, that is her left and to our right, that's uh, a person who is wearing an infant life jacket and said so and so forth. That is, we can see that that's a very different type of life jacket, and yet it uh, is the kind of life jacket that the videographer is shown to be wearing in the lower image. So those two are the same type of life jacket, and the other one is not. Okay, I see that you've got that other image. And, uh, I, I switch back to the adult. Uh, I switch back to the infant life jacket versus adult life jackets, and then uh, so okay. I can go. Okay, so that's where we left. That's this is presently on the screen right now. Yeah. So but, I'll go wherever you want. Well, I think looking now at the right side of that image, which is 37 seconds later than the one on the left, if we were to believe the time markers on that NTSB video. 
which I'm not completely convinced of, but here, here we go. Uh, comparing the shoe, which is on the far left side, we know that greenish, yellowish green uh, sole shoe is indeed of Loretta Fuddy because we've seen it in several other images. We've seen it inside the cabin. We've seen it uh, throughout this video. All of a sudden, that has disappeared. And if we look at that right image, the person that's standing next to the deputy director of the Hawaii Department of Health is very different. Doesn't have a curvy frame, is not two, five foot two by any imagination, but is in fact rather thin, has what are at least comparably spindly legs, and is rather tall. That is, I would scope it to be at least six foot tall. That person is six foot tall or better. And the frame is very different. The shoes are very different. The bottom of the shoe is different. The side of the shoe is very different. And the tops of the shoe are different. Loretta Fuddy's shoe has a low top. And this person's shoe has a high top, white booted kind of shoe. So I think there's only one thing to be concluded here, and that is that these are not the same people. Especially in, say, 37 seconds parts these two images. Um, there wasn't time for Loretta Footy to grow another 8 to 12 inches and um, and so on and so forth and change shoes. Uh, you know what, Rex? Uh, everyone's talking about a body double of, of uh, Hillary Clinton, the, the, the remarkable discrepancy between the way she looked on 9-11 going into the, uh, or at the time of the, uh, her, you know, uh, passing out versus coming out of her uh, Chelsea's apartment. So we have the same thing here, is what you're saying. There's a remarkable difference in the yeah. body size, in the shoes. There's no, no yeah. real comparison. There's almost no feature of these two people that are the same. The uh, size is different. The shoes are different. The life jacket that uh, is being worn, it's clearly not a, an infant life jacket on the right side image and it rides very differently than it did on Loretta Fuddy when she was standing next to her deputy director. So mm. the, the weights of these two people, the way they carry themselves in, on a floating position is just all different. And okay. as I alluded about, uh, for example, the person now wearing a life jacket that earlier was not, there are important things that we can learn that have gone on at this point in time. Okay. And one of them is that Loretta Fuddy is no longer in this situation, and that she was exchanged by somebody else who obviously has a, apparently a red wig or maybe has red hair and is of a different size. And the deputy director at her side knew all this and has kept it hidden. The pilot is standing there uh, or floating there perhaps just five yards away. And he must have seen it all go on because he's in both pictures 37 seconds apart. Um, it's just amazing how people have kept quiet about all of this over that period of time. So, what you're proposing that, here is what you're proposing is a switch out of Loretta Fuddy with someone else, and you were presenting the video, the the video that they took that perhaps might have flown under the radar until you brought this out. That there was a there's a switch and and as evidenced by the body frame, by the shoes, by the life jacket, by the hair. Yeah, we should go. You got that frame up. I see uh, that you went to the next frame, and that's yes. quite appropriate. There's just no way that those two are the same people. 
And this bespeaks that those people who in any way could have seen that happening had to have had foreknowledge of all of this. That is, if you would see someone uh, you know, racing up and swapping one person in a scenario, or as, as some people have conjectured, uh, that his Fuddy's death might have been some kind of murder or something like that. Um, if that kind of scenario had happened where she was absconded with and, and dragged off, um, these people who are all within 15 yards of her, not one of them did anything. That has to say they were aware of what was going to happen and they were pleased or at least okay with this switch out and so that changes everything about this scenario it means that uh, it was okay and even encouraged not to be telling the truth and that is one of the characteristics that we see again and again and again and again every single time the actions of all of these people we, there's not one person in this scenario who uh, is playing completely straight. Not one. All right. Now, in the remaining five minutes we have of this session, uh, what you what we've uncovered here, what you've uncovered and we've presented, is the fact that the number one that uh, that the downing of this plane or the takedown of this plane or the intentional grounding of this plane on the water did not happen the way they, that uh, it was portrayed. You have you have you have furnished evidence to show that the audio was photoshopped or audio shopped the uh, of the transmissions. There was no mayday call. I mean the the number of of just to recap everything. The number of inconsistencies are just tremendous. It cannot be coincidental or accidental. It's got to be you're left with. It's got to be intentional. Um, you've got a swap out. As as crazy, folks, as this might sound, and I was a hard sell on this because I, 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 I thought, nah, nah, nah. But right before our very eyes, <laughs> and with video to prove it, right before our very eyes, you've got the deputy or the uh, director of the uh, uh, Human uh, Health Services of Hawaii, the, the person, the gatekeeper of Obama's identity birth certificate being swapped out in this in this incident. And you also have... As Rex had stated earlier, Hollywood involved to the extent that oh, the other plane in the area was occupied by Hollywood uh, by, by a uh, well-known Hollywood. Uh, what would you call him? A stunt? Uh, not a stunt. But yeah, he's a, a stunt pilot. He's been on see, on camera. That is, he's been on the other side of the lens doing uh, stunts and things in this helicopter type scenario. Mm-hmm. He's been used okay. in that way. Um, but these are people who are very versed with that kind of uh, scenario and how certain things need to be done. And that's a coincidence all by itself, but we're going to see that there's a lot of further evidence that suggests that that would be very desirable for this kind of scenario. Rex, now, these um, people I gotta, having the foreknowledge. Yeah, go ahead. I got I to I stop you there because we're, we're we're coming up to the the bottom of this hour. I just want to say thank okay. you because we're tomorrow we're going to lay out tomorrow's session. We're going to lay out ex- really what you know the the the, the real juicy stuff. Um, you did a great job with this, man. This again, 117 uh, panels of images, evidence, documentation. And some of it's painstaking, but it's all important to, to, to make the case that others won't and haven't. Rex, will you join us tomorrow as planned? I look forward to it. Thank you. All right, brother. Thank you.
Folks, that was Rex. We're going to pick this up tomorrow a little bit, a little bit different than what you thought. Evidence being laid out by this investigator, pilot, computer expert, uh, FAA certified guy known as Rex under threat, laying it all out for you. Yes, he's been threatened as have his colleagues. When we come back for our final segment, we're going to hit more important news and information and close the program out strong. We'll be right back. Stay with us. to you live from our radio and television studios here in northwest Pennsylvania, giving you the news that others don't, won't, can't, refuse to do, unfiltered, uncensored, and uh, watchmen unleashed. I'd like to look, you know, investigative, uh, you're talking about investigations, uh, quite the investigation there, more tomorrow on that. Lots uh, of evidence. Yes, uh, the evidence is overwhelming when you take a look at this and, and understand the implications for today. You've got Hillary Diane Rodham Clinton, of course, now the subject of, uh, continuing the subject of uh, Hillary Clinton about the uh, emails, and, and you might think this is a done deal. Oh, well, no, this is funny. How smart is this guy? Well, here's here's what's going on. Reddit users, perhaps you've heard of Reddit. It's a social media and news aggregation uh, forum. website forum, yeah. and people post questions and discussions on this. Well, just uh, Gateway Pundit ran with this. Reddit users found um, they blow Hillary's email scandal wide open, mm-hmm. and a guy by the name of Paul Combetta. That's C O M B E T T A. Hillary Clinton's IT specialist. That's right. He was. He asked uh, uh, the day before he was, or the day after, I believe, was his. Uh, he was subpoenaed, or right around the same time. He went on to Reddit and asked people, "Hey, how do you do? You know how to change the um, uh, to change the uh, uh, headers on emails?" Yeah, he wanted to delete information and. Uh, signature lines. Well, let, let me let me read exactly what he asked. Here's what he posted on Reddit, and 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 he he, he tried to delete it or he did delete it successfully afterwards. But when people caught on, but here's this Paul Combetta writing this. He says, "Hello, all. I may be facing a very interesting situation where I need to strip out. That's strip out a VIP and then parentheses very VIP email address from a bunch of archived email that I have." both in a live exchange mailbox as well as a PST file. Basically, they don't want the VIP's email address exposed to anyone and, and want to be able to either strip out or replace the email address in the to from fields in all of the emails we want to send out, meaning to turn over. So, he writes, I'm not sure if something like this is possible with PowerShell or exporting all the emails to MSG and doing find slash replaces. You know how you do that, right? Um, With a batch processing program of some sort. Does anyone have any experience with something like this? And or suggestions on how this might be accomplished. So what this guy's doing on behalf of Hillary Clinton is changing the historical record in direct contempt. Mm -hmm. Okay, this you talk about contempt and contemptible behavior and criminal behavior. This is what he's asking. And he, and, he and they called him out on this, too. He was given immunity by the Department of Justice when the news <laughs> broke out that he deleted Clinton's emails from her private server. 
although Cumbetter claims he did not order or tamper with emails, even though the FBI had previously ordered him not to. He continued to work with the Clintons for six months after the original story broke. During the six months, while investigations were brewing, um, Cumbetter allegedly posted numerous questions on Reddit asking how to strip out email addresses out of archived emails and how to configure email retention policies. Well, yes, and, and it's interesting. He goes by the name Stone Tear or Stone Tear. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, he has been posting on this, trying to get get some answers. And when the other posters point out that hey, what you're doing has serious legal implications, and there's screenshots that are archived of the mm-hmm. of the exchange. Okay, the the uh, this this uh, uh, this gentleman, uh, this Paul uh, uh, Cambetta, Cambetta. Yeah, I just want to make sure I had the last name proper. Uh, scrubbed all, you know, took, took, he tore a page out of the Clinton playbook and scrubbed all of his postings to Reddit. However, they were archived. You see, nothing on the internet is fleeting. It's all documented forever and ever. So here we have evidence, direct evidence, compliments of the fine folks at Reddit and is published by the people at Gateway Pundit, and it's on our website at HagmanReport.com. Joe posted earlier today. This shows the criminality. This shows the criminal intent. And let me just uh, say this, and I'm going to turn it over for additional news from Joe, but the um, uh, the uh, situation is this, very simply and simply put. Uh, the Comey said on July 5th of this year, I should add here that we found no evidence that any of the additional work-related emails were intentionally deleted in an effort to conceal them. Our assessment is that, like many email users, Secretary Clinton periodically deleted emails or emails were purged from the system when devices were changed. Well, well, Director Comey, newsflash, and this was not found by any of your uh, FBI agents, investigators. No, this was found by people who want to see justice done. And and I say this, there is evidence of criminal activity, there's evidence of criminal intent, criminal conspiracy, and outright contempt, evidence and of premeditation. Even though the FBI Director Comey said their intent wasn't there, it was gross negligence, all the statute calls for is gross, gross negligence. negligence. But here's intent on top of everything else. They have the, the the fine folks at Reddit, the forum users, the internet uh, site users, the people exposed this for all to see. Director Comey, do your job, and all the other congressmen and senators, do your job. Well, indict this woman. Since Comey came out and said what he said against Hillary Clinton, in the words of uh, the Huffington Post, indicting her in the court of public opinion. Um, it has been found that he has direct ties to the Clinton Foundation and HSBC no, Bank and uh, is a lot more involved in Clinton's affairs and has uh, money to lose by going against Hillary Clinton. So you can see the ties of corruption and how these people are so intertwined. You know, it, it's just disgusting. And justice will never be served when you have this type of operating system in our government full of corruption of, at the highest levels. And it is, it is just disgusting. Um, and another Hillary Clinton news before we move on to Obama and the UN and, and some globalist news. Uh, I don't know how many people saw this in the last few days. This was originally posted on September 17th. 
debate rules being set by Hillary donors. Campaign contributions from bipartisan debate commissioners given exclusively to Clinton. Yep. The men and women who run the nonpartisan, supposedly nonpartisan commission on presidential debates have put their money where their mouths are, and it all has gone to Democrat Hillary Clinton. Now, the amount of money is small by the standards of a modern presidential campaign, but it is one-sided. And they go on in this article to lay out the different amounts and um, who's given what. But as this article goes on to uh, say that this is um, part of the corruption in the, of the system, that these people who are uh, going to be creating the questions and, and rules for the debate are all one-sided. They've all donated to only Hillary Clinton and not to Donald Trump, showing their uh, partisan when they're supposed to be bipartisan. And this is just one of many stories that deals with the inside uh, protection that Hillary Clinton has when it comes to the media, when it comes to the uh, Federal Elections Commission, when it comes to the Democratic uh, Committee rules, when it comes, I mean, just all the way down the line, up and down the line. And it's no surprise, this is what we see, that Hillary Clinton's going to get the preferential treatment, is going to be shielded from any controversies, and Donald Trump is going to get the short end of the stick in any debate that is held by the media in a public forum. Oh, they're going to have the script uh, given to her. And, and in a related note, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, said he was going to release prior to the first debate, which is next Monday, information on Hillary that would require her to be indicted for criminal offenses. So far, nothing yet uh, among Bernie Sanders supporters, there, there's a lot of talk right now that this included documentation that Bernie and his family were physically threatened mm-hmm. if, uh, if he didn't withdraw and paid off as well. Don't forget, he just bought a beach house. Two. Two uh, houses. Yes, so that's right. Right after he withdrew from the election. Isn't that interesting? You know, what a good, what's a good socialist to do <laughs> than buy, you know, two houses, not just one, but two. So we're waiting we'll on we the say, uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, right, but we're waiting on this, and we're wondering where this is. We're watching this because, of course, Assange said, look, this is going to be, you know, breathtaking, and uh, it's going to require a criminal indictment. So, all right, where is it? We're waiting on it. Folks, we're going to keep you posted as to, uh, I mean, the second it comes out, we will have it. Um, Very insightful headline, Obama, submit to world government. Uh, This was President Obama said that nations will have to give up some of their autonomy and freedom to achieve security on Tuesday during a speech to the United Nations General Assembly. Obama told the audience he believes global security can be achieved with the help of international institutions like the U.N. In his remarks, Obama said powerful nations like the United States will have to accept constraints and give up some of their freedom. The president acknowledged that he has been criticized by his own citizens for this belief, but that he remains convinced he is right. Obama also stated that while countries will have to accept some limits on their freedom, they should not give up the right to defend themselves. But uh, it goes on from there. And he goes on to talk about how there needs to be uh, cooperation between powerful nations and can the continued, we're going to have to give up some freedom, we're not giving up our ability to protect ourselves or pursue our core interest, but binding ourselves to international rules over the long term enhances our security, is what he said. Mm-hmm. And this is par for the course for his administration, as his 
handlers and pals and buddies are all globalist. Now he is his final speech with the UN um, and that UN body as the Ban Ki Moon, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, will be stepping down and a new Secretary General will be put in place by the end of the year or in the beginning of January. Um, Bill Gates also made some statements today. Bill Gates has said voter opposition to globalism is eye-opening, citing the populist movement, and that's something we're going to talk about more, the populist movement, populism, because this is talked about in books from the 1900s to the 1950s by some of the top political strategists, including Zbigniew Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, and even David Rockefeller, and I think there's a lot more to this than what we uh think we look at populism i've looked at populism as a good thing and awake citizenship uh, people becoming more active and involved in the systems of government trying to understand and fix the problems where they are but there is a more nefarious plan by the globalists when it pertains to populism and uh we're going to get into those details a little bit later in, um, in uh, other shows but bill gates has yep. seen the first-hand benefits of globalism as the co-founder of the bill and melinda gates foundation but he has also watched the groundswell of populist opposition to open markets and collaboration among countries. He sees this opposition as a huge concern, a huge concern, and says the underlying issues warrant a close examination. No. And he goes on, uh, mm-hmm. folks, you can read about that at geekwire.com, uh, about what he says. And he goes on to praise globalization and how it has had huge benefits, speeding up innovation, uh, expanding the international economy. And, uh, you know, going on and on about how great globalism is, right in tow with Obama, all these people who are the top 1% of the 1% and the political and, and business corporate elites across the country and the world seem to be the only ones that are calling for this globalist new world order, and they sure are ushering it in quickly. One quick international economic note, China is facing a full-blown banking crisis, according to some. This article was from yesterday. China facing full-blown banking crisis. World's top financial watchdog warns, and China has failed to curb excess in its credit system and faces mounting risks of a full-blown banking crisis, according to early warning indicators by the world's top financial watchdog. A key gauge of credit vulnerability is now three times over the danger threshold and has continued to deteriorate despite pledges by Chinese Premier to wean the economy off debt-driven growth before it's too late. Now, the Bank of International Settlements warned in its quarterly report that China's credit-to-GDP gap has reached 30 to 1, the highest to date, and in a different league altogether from any other major country tracked by the institution. Mm. Something to keep your eye on. You know, the changeover of the Internet occurs at the end of this month, mm-hmm. October 1st, uh, uh, the uh, ICANN changes over to a global uh, concern. Well, Teresa Payton is a writer for The Hill and uh, The Hill uh, uh, News uh, Organization says that changing who controls ICANN jeopardizes our presidential election. Folks, we told you there's something about this election where the legitimacy of the winner could very well be challenged or there could be problems with this election to such an extent that 
this we may not have one look at this now congress has not yet acted to preserve the ICANN uh, to us to americans no no now they're going to throw it out to the various other countries via the united nations now what's that going to do it's it, the security if if see, a site is hacked you got no you've got no recourse i don't know if i if i would tie the internet turnover into the possibility of problems with the elections and i'll uh well, back that up by saying Payton says no you you have to electronic diabolt machines and their their origin and the money goes back to Soros and Soros organizations so it's he a actually done deal. owns the voting machines which are based out of Spain uh at the last time that I went through this information through a few hops but yes right. that's true and he has even said the population of America may vote Trump in by a landslide Yet he might lose the presidency due to the electoral college. That's right. Now, that would be an obvious, uh, you know, big red flag. Just as you know, we see with the attendance of Hillary Clinton and just the implosion of her campaign and the continued rise of Trump. Not only uh, throughout, uh, you know, with you know, white Americans as they uh, dub the Trump supporters. Uh, the but also, yes. the rise, you see headlines now, Trump is rising with Hispanics. Trump is rising with millennials. Hillary Clinton has taken a 19-point deficit in 30 days with millennials, what people would who are 30 then? years or under. What would happen if, if, if Trump loses because the Electoral College flips to, to Hillary? And don't forget, uh, you know, old Daddy Bush there, the globalist that he is, and, and Barbara, <laughs> the white-haired lady, nice lady, you know, is... is uh, Pining for Hillary, yeah, and George W. Of course, uh, Bill Clinton, a brother from another mother, as he once described them. But my question is, what would happen in America? Anything? Would there be any kind of revolt if the popular vote was trumped? No pun intended by the Electoral College, and Trump was put in there. But but that's a good question. If, if Trump won, though, now we're but we're see we're seeing the it's, legitimacy it both of, ways. of them being uh, the, the elections being questioned because hey, I, the website's hacked. I can go to I can. That's one of the it's one of the stop gaps there. Well, you can't do it because it's a globalist organization. You can't go through the so all of this combined. These elections in 2016 are going to be covered in, in doubt. Well, you know, one thing, you, you asked the question, what would happen? Would there be an uprising or some kind of yeah. um, you know, populist movement if Trump was, the election was stolen from him in a way that it was obvious to everyone? Which at this point, anybody who's paying attention, if Trump doesn't win the election, I think it will be obvious to everyone that the election was taken from him. Then what? Th- well, then will there be any... I don't folks, know. let me ask you. But let me tell you this. Guys. The Internet. Say they take over the Internet and say that oh, there's, it's given a to. kill switch and it's shut off for a few weeks until they rearrange whatever they're doing or just for the heck of it. Then you'll see people in the streets. Well, yeah, because they can't get their Facebook exactly. or like Candy Crush or whatever. It does. It was until a, then, I don't know. You're going Mario, to have pockets of, Mario. of resistance and protest, and I think they will be very intense and they that. could create a lot of problems. But I'm not sure. I mean, we've talked about this many times. And for the majority of people, it's going to be too late by the time they want to stand up and do something because the the boots of the police force or whoever's coming will already be through their front door and they'll already, you know, never have a chance. People aren't going to get up. I mean, unless it is affecting their 
you know, a, a large majority of people's jobs all at once or their ability to eat or bank. But wait a second, though. I, look, I, I understand. don't see... 3% it's, it's stated. I, I know, I, but let's cut to the chase here. I, a, a very sm- minor percentage uh, took place or got involved in the revolution, the, the right. Revolutionary War. Now, the 3% number is, is under scrutiny. They're saying, oh, no, 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 no. And, and they're saying upwards of 40 to 50%. And, well, 10%. But, but, okay, let's go back. All right, so let's go back and say, what happens if 10% become involved? I do believe that we're, that we're seeing the, the, the components of a revolution being uh, being uh, founded here. I, I and and the, the way that people would have the most effective revolution and a way to affect change is not by going out in the street and, and protesting and yelling. What it would be is for everybody to withdraw their money out of the banks, for everybody to not go to work, for everybody to not shop and, you know, for days on end. play. Right, exactly. The American public will have to come to a halt, and then, and during yep. that time, take care of each other, if needed, as needed, to make sure that a united front is presented, regardless of any culture, race, you know, uh, gender identity. It doesn't matter. Look, we are sounding the alarm bells right now, and, and I mean, trust me when I say this, we are sounding the alarm bells. Everyone has to get in this game. We have to have skin. We have. We all have skin in this game. Are we going to play? Are we going to get involved? That's that's the question. That is the question. And, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, it's come out uh, hilarious. Hillary Wine, the media are biased against me. Oh, I don't know man. how many, I know people have seen this, but it is so obvious to, to those who are paying attention. But everything that Trump has been uh, going through from media bias uh, and whatnot and, and Hillary Clinton turns around and acts like it. You know, she's the victim of these things. Uh, Wait, a good example her, was the followers. basket of deplorable, deplorable statement she made. She stated that half of Trump supporters are a, ba- a basket of deplorables who are xenophobic, homophobic, um, you know, Islamophobic, and are not Racist. Americans. Is what she said in her own words. And she walked uh, that back, though. You know, she tried to walk it back, but but. Um, what that you know, and the pay-to-play issues. Then you see these headlines: oh, Trump pay-to-play. I mean, all these things that Clinton are is accused of. They turn around and create headlines to make it look like Trump is the one behind the you know people I'm that know what pay-to-play was. And I saw in the New York Times, oh, Trump's pay-to-play scheme. That's right. But it's just crazy. The um, there has never been a time in since I've been. Uh, Alive that I've been paying attention that I've seen anything close to this. I mean, it's just beyond well, comparison. Can, now yeah, listen, you can listen add to this. me in my years onto this. I've never seen anything like this. You and, want to talk about insanity? Know. New York City mayor says Islamic terror vanishingly or vanishing two mm-hmm. days after the attack. Another uh, pundit on CNN claimed that. The reason that this terrorist was allowed to, the one terrorist stabbing, uh, gun control was the reason that uh, the lack of gun control allowed the, the stabbing in Minnesota and the explosions in New York. Uh, Durbin, Senator Durbin, That's said right. that. Blamed the lack uh, of a, a Republican legislation on gun control. Now this, kind of sk- skipping around here, but you see what the Navy's doing? The Navy is requiring all sailors to undergo transgender education training by 2017. There you go. Forget battlefield tactics and, and wartime uh, drills and training exercises. 
and the things that they need to do on a regular basis to be prepared for combat. Instead, the U.S. Navy will require all of its sailors to undergo transgender education treatment by the end of next summer in response to a recent policy change that will allow transgender people to serve in the military. Just so Bruce can walk in his six-inch stilettos on the deck of an aircraft carrier, right? I mean, it's just insane. Um, And we see that, you know, what's happening in North Carolina with the uh, sporting teams being uh, taken out of their ability to contend for national titles due to the North Carolina's transgender bathroom policy, which says men will go to men's rooms if that is their uh, sex of origin and women into women's rooms. They're being... uh, they're having their their hundred million dollar sporting events taken away from their their towns. That's right. Their schools are not allowed to recruit, you know, from different places. Mm-mm. These, I mean, it's they're being punished because the leadership in the state is standing up for what's right. And yeah, this right. is a a big red flag and an indicator of what is to come because this is going to pertain to all of us. You well, you want to hear something? How, Go ahead. Go well, ahead. how long until? I mean, if a government if the federal government can punish um, colleges and other schools in the state and other um, organizations that have nothing to do with government based on the state governments That's right. and leadership's policies that don't align with federal governments, how long till that applies to all citizens in the state? It's common because the, the, I mean, the states have rights they're not asserting except in this condition or the, the, the North Carolina. But you're right. Yeah. And in the last Hillary Clinton news, um, Hillary Clinton cancels event in California. Campaign says her pneumonia is back. Yeah. And again, Donald Trump says, you know, have a good sleep, Um, which it is funny. Uh, Yeah, get some rest. Go ahead. Go ahead, Hillary. Get some rest. She's, what, worked two days out of the last 20, maybe? Kind of like you. Um, (laughs) And then this this story, uh, last one I want to hit tonight. Which was I saw yesterday. I didn't want to post this on the site because, uh, like the Washington Post yeah. and other certain sites, you get five articles a month, and if you read or extend over that five articles, you well, have to it subscribe. seems like you really like great journalism. So this is from this. the Wall Street yes. Journal. Yeah. When information storage gets under your skin, tiny implants to replace keys, store business cards and medical data, and a lot more eventually. We've talked about this at length in the past, and folks, I would urge everybody to go to the Wall Street Journal to read this, and it's in if other you have places the ability, now. Right? Uh, the, yeah, well, yeah. What what they're pushing here is implants, RFID implants, uh, can be activated, scanned by readers that use radio frequency identification technology RFID, and those includes ordinary smartphones and readers already installed in office buildings to allow entrance with entrance with common ID. Now, what they go on to say in this article, they lay out different sectors this can be used on um, and how it's done, How and they, they give a rough estimate that in the world, 30 to 50,000 people already have RFID tags in their hands to unlock doors, start cars, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but the medical yeah. potential in this article is what is important, where it goes on to say implanted tags have demonstrated potential for use in travel but it's uh what can really catch people's uh eye with this tag under the skin is its ability for medical purposes the big potential for use of tags in medicine although big challenges need to be met they say is the number one reason why everybody should get 
the, the RFID sh- chip, they say. Yeah. Now, we all know that it's coming. We all know it will be mandatory at some point. I do believe. Absolutely it will. And the medical uh, reasons are the reasons why it will be... Uh, just imagine, we see the Zika stuff and the Ebola stuff we went through not too long ago. Just imagine some kind of real pandemic that's affecting a third of the American population or you know, a third of the global population. You'll be asking for that ship. Yes, you will. If it guarantees a protection uh, yeah, yeah. from that disease. And that's how we are going to be uh, be hamstrung, and that's how we're going to be, be made to do this. And, and, and also the money issue. The you money wanna, issue. You want to be able to commerce? That's right. Take that's right. this chip. That's right. And now, it's amazing how much... We, I, I just want to hit this real quick, Joe, real quick, because... You talk about the, uh, you talk about something that is just so blatant in your face. How much more can, I mean, I, I'm just going to toss this out to, to, to everyone. Listen carefully. Remember when Trump told Hillary, uh, disarm, you know, have your bodyguards yeah. disarm. Let's see what happens. Yep. Okay. Kane. Kane, Tim Kane, Hillary's running mate on the ticket, blast Trump for inciting violence. You know what he said? I want to punch him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, I'd like to punch the guy in the face. This in the context of taking Trump to task for inciting violence. No, Trump, all Trump said was, you guys want gun control so bad? Have your Secret Service lose their weapons. Oh. See what happens. He was making a point. He wasn't threatening anything. No. He wasn't asserting anything, except if you want the American people to follow your lead on gun control, you lead. You're talking about the first. stupidity of the Democratic National Sto- Socialists and their minions that follow them. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. He's inciting violence. In fact, I want to punch the guy in the face. <laughs> if, if Folks, if you were laughing right now, it's hypocrisy. Uh, everything they say is hypocrisy. Lies upon lies to cover up lies. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, th- thanks for bearing with us through the investigative details. More tomorrow, and much more tomorrow. God bless each and every one of you.